recording in progress. I love it. We already have more B-real material than we did last time. (laughs) (laughs) When it showed up, my wife's like, I don't think my husband knew how big it was. (laughs) Are you going to leave that in? No. (laughs) (laughs) But it feels fun to say it anyway. I was like, damn. Somebody amped it up to Thai spicy today. <laughs> At our triple P spring ping. Spring ping, really? Spring ping. Is it? Is it I kind of like it's, spring it's, ping. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say spring ping, think, just, just so I we're clear. I provide the non-American culture. So you provide culture. Jensen, you, you know that the Sherman I'm working on is called Lancashire, right? Say, say it again. Lancashire. Okay. I, I see a twitch. That's bait. I'll say it the right way. Lancashire. Lancashire. I said that. Lancashire. (laughs) That's the name of the tank. That's right on the side. Anyway. (laughs) It not even started yet. (laughs) Friendly at (laughs) gmail.com. John chose violence with hot sauce. Just got to set the record straight. I mean, spring ping. Are you guys, is anybody, good grief, guys. I was hoping you'd kick it to somebody, but I'll come back in and do that for you. Sorry. Sorry, Scott. You can edit that out. (laughs) Or not. (laughs) Spring ping. You're welcome for my service. Welcome to episode 83 of the Plastic Posse. Everybody's here today, which is the first time in a long time I want to welcome Scott, Doug, Jensen, JB, TJ, and the rest of you guys listening. All right, let's go around the room and see what everybody's up to. First, we're going to head all the way over to England to see what Jensen's up to. How you man doing, my friend? Uh, I've been doing all right. I've been quiet. I, I have to like sometimes post a bit of modeling in the group chat to prove that actually I'm still alive. <laughs> Um, but I finished. I finished the AK facade group build. That's that was really fun. Uh, I would have posted pictures a few days ago when I actually finished it, but I just cannot, for the life of me, find the charger for my camera. It's a really generic plug as well. It's just a, a two pin plug. But um, as soon as I get that found, I'll post the pictures all over FaceSake and all that stuff. But yeah, really enjoyed that. Um, I, like a few of the guys did, I cut a bit of foam with a um, hot wire cutter for a, a pavement sort of thing on the front. I did some pigeons because we know how original they are. And a little uh, 1940s French civilian from mini art. Like, it's it's quite an old molding, but it comes with uh, resin heads. So it's a bit of an improvement. But yeah, got that finished. Really, really enjoyed that because there's literally no building whatsoever. It's literally get out of the box, get painting, weathering, do all that fun stuff. Yeah, really, really enjoyed that. I want to do more of them. And I really want AK to release more of these facades. Um, You're here. Yeah, absolutely. I can just see. They'll, they'll sell really well. Um, the first two they released... Uh, were great and, and there's no shortage of ideas they can come up with but yeah just been doing that I've also every day I walk into the other room and I look at the pile of kits I've got and I'm just thinking which one do I do and every day I walk out thinking okay that was a waste I've still not decided so still just trying to like 
toss a few ideas around to what actual plastic model to build next. Ah. Uh, I'll let you know when I decide. <laughs> That's great. Your facade looks great, and I'm with you 100%. They need to release some more. They can just do the facades themselves now without the paints and everything, I think. would be good yep. just separately. So. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move over to the Commonwealth of Virginia and see how TJ's doing. Oh, I'm not doing too bad. Um, I've been pretty busy at the bench, which has been nice. La- I guess it was last weekend was Thanksgiving, if I'm if I got my days correct. Um, it was a long weekend. I was out of town most of that weekend. Um, but our friends over at the Model and Sammy podcast did what they called the turkey shoot. So it was build a kid over four days. Uh, I missed two of those days. So when I got back Friday night, I got out um, Tacom Whippet, which is one of my favorite kits. It was the first tank they ever built. Um, and I slammed that thing together between, I guess, Saturday morning and Sunday afternoon. Um, of course, I cheated a little bit because I didn't put the, the machine guns in it. So that is, a, you know. Cleaning up those machine guns takes a little bit of work. Um, I didn't, I didn't add them for that reason, and also because um, I'm doing it as a, a captured white Russian tank that was, or yeah, that was captured by the Red Army during the Russian Civil War. And a lot of the pictures I've seen of the the tanks that the Red Army captured, they have all the machine gun, they have all the guns stripped out of them. I don't know why, but you you just kind of see that. So I was like, yeah, I can justify it that way. Um, so yeah, I got it, I got it painted and then, um, I didn't finish. I just got it built over the weekend and, um, I primed it and painted it green, which it looks okay. Um, I kind of set it aside and went back to, um, poking around on my Sherbin three. I got that progressing nicely. I, I painted all the track armor on the tank today or last night and finished it today. And the other thing I got out is the Hummel that our friend Zach gave, uh, uh gave me it, three years ago like <laughs> and he had built it uh when he was like 19 wow and uh that's like when we first got to know each other and he asked me if i would be interested in painting it and i was like yeah sure you know just want to make a kid feel good i was like yeah yeah sure buddy because he's like oh i suck at painting which of course he does not suck at painting but um yeah so we worked out a, a you know a collaboration or whatever so he had built it and he sent it to me and it's just kind of been sitting literally collecting dust for three years and um i wasn't really in uh i don't know a painting mood to to work on the sherman i guess that was thursday night so i went and got it out and um kind of got it cleaned up a little bit um i got to do a little bit of repair work on it just because it's been moving it's been shipped it's been moved around my um my studio whatever my my area um some pieces have fallen off nothing major it's like a couple little pieces of photo etch and um something else came off too okay oh the part of the superstructure which is really really thin it's held together just by a little glue joint and he put a weld on it that broke too just it's split so i gotta reinforce it with some super glue and then i'll re-sculpt the weld on it which is really maybe half an inch worth of weld it's it's just a little bit and then uh, it'll be ready to get into primer and i'll get that painted up yeah it's not my forte but i'm doing it in a um captured Russian markings from a pretty cool picture I found of a couple of them that they had captured. I'm assuming some point in 1945 because there's an M4A276 in the background and those weren't built until like late 1944. Mm-hmm. So they probably would not have been into Russian hands until early 45. So um, the picture I have doesn't have a date, but just based on what's in the background, that's what I'm going to assume it was. But yeah, right. that's what I got going on. All right, let's move over to Colorado and JB, what's been up with you? Thanks, Grant. About the same, you know, I participated in the turkey uh, turkey shoot hosted by the Model Insanity podcast. So special thanks to 
Rob, Rav, Justin, and Steve over there, they popped into our Zoom session. And I think next year, you know, we, we attempted the 72 and 72 this year. You know, we had great participation, but I think next year it's full support for the Modeling Insanity's Turkey Shoot. What they do is really fun. And they hosted it over those four days during Thanksgiving from the morning of Thursday all the way into the evening of Sunday. So they're a great, great group of folks, uh, lots of laughs. They popped into our Zoom sessions and it was a lot of fun. So for that, I built... I built Tamiya's old SDKF said 250-9. I converted it to a 253. And when I say convert, I don't even like using that word because I added a couple strips of styrene. Uh, and then I painted it my patented Panzer Blue. So um, there were some people that maybe don't get the joke, uh, and that's fine. Uh, I paint my Panzer Gray Blue. Uh, but it was a little cool. It was a little fun kit. Uh, really enjoyed it. Kind of surprised me how fast it went together and then how fast I got it through the painting process. But that was one project. In addition to that, I finished both facades completely. They are framed in those five by seven shadow boxes. I added some bicycles that were printed, little uh, ceramic um, cobblestone street section, and then polished it off with some pigeons as well on the bookstore. So got those three things done. And then I also just finished last night. I'll probably tweak it this morning a little bit. The 72nd scale Bismarck B turret. This little guy was a lot of fun. I think I built it in a day or two. And then painted it in three or four. So highly recommend those TACOM kits. They're great. They're a great distraction, I guess you could say, to quickly build something and finish it. It was a lot of fun. I've taken a lot of pictures. I'll uh, I'll share them on Patreon because I did a little SBS for it, uh, just kind of going through those different steps. But I did mine really rusty. I don't know if the Bismarck was ever rusty, but I've seen a lot of boat pictures of rusty boats because if they're out at the sea, that is the most encrosive environment on earth. So I rusted it up with some oil paint. So that was a lot of fun. Again, highly recommended. And then in addition to that, I will note, because we were talking before we started recording, if you have one of those turrets, if you go on eBay, there's a company out of China that does laser cut decking and then also aluminum barrels. Super cheap. I paid 10 bucks. I got decking in two barrels for this. Just shared the Missouri barrels with Doug. 20 bucks for three turned aluminum barrels that are pretty massive. Um, they'll save you a lot of time. I mean, to be honest, if you buy those barrels, you could probably buy this. You could probably build this, I should say, in probably two or three hours, super mm-hmm. fast. The only thing that I didn't like about mine is on the Bismarck turret, it has these little turnbuckles for the canvas covers. If I had to do it over again, I would have drilled holes to insert them and glue them. They're just kind of glued to the top and they're extremely fragile. Or you could even leave them off because I've seen pictures online of models uh, where they didn't even include them. And to be honest, you wouldn't even know unless someone told you. So that's a fun little project. I'm going to go out to uh, the store today and find a base for it. It's five by five and then call that done. And then dare I say, I have 29 days to finish the Secret Santa from last year, which is the Sergeant York. So it is the last project I hope to complete this year. I have it behind me. I'll be starting it this weekend. We're not starting it, starting it back up this weekend with the hopes of finishing it by the 1st of January. Wow. A Sergeant York in 30 days. Mm, That's a big (laughs) kit. (laughs) You and TJ have both been phenomenally building it. Seeing the pictures of both your guys' works has been great. Uh, Really good. All right. Let's head up to Utah with Doug. How you doing, Doug? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. I, too, participated in the turkey shoot from the Modeling Insanity guys. I chose a Tamiya 48 scale F4U1D Corsair, which I did finish in time. It was a lot of fun. I built the kit before. It it had some hiccups like I had forgotten when I built it 20 years ago that uh, if you put the wings on down and locked, ready to fly, um, there are some fit issues. They just don't seem to want to go together right. And uh, so I, I had to kind of bust open the wing 
and and remove those parts and put the wing fold pieces in so that I could fold the wings and make it look a little bit better. Um, it was a lot of fun. I had to mix my blue. Uh, I didn't have it. I didn't have the navy blue in my on my shelf, so I found a, a recipe online, and it came out pretty good. I enjoyed all of that. And the funny thing is, during that time, on Thanksgiving Day, my wife was upstairs with our daughter, and my wife said she was feeling really sorry for me because I was downstairs all alone. I was working on a model and I was having a great day. <laughs> Thanksgiving was great. Anyway, I also, I attempted a 72, 70 second scale kit for the 72 and 72 also, but that one was kind of a mistake. I can't, I, I still look at that thing and I just can't believe they, the trumpeter, I mean, it's trumpeter, of course, we don't expect great things necessarily, but I mean, when you've got a 70 second scale tank, it's an elephant, big tank, but 49 pieces for the tracks each side, each track has 49 pieces on it. And then the running gear itself is not is not well designed. It, it's not made for, it's like they just took a took a 35th scale and just downscaled it, just downsized it. It just, it's Which not exactly made for the scale. They did. Yeah. It's not made for that scale. It's yeah. not good for, so anyway, other than that, I, once we finished the, the, finished the course there, I just wanted to keep building. So I started another Bandai TIE Fighter because, you know, I'm always happy building Star Wars. All right, Scott, the master of disaster, what have you been up to? Well, I uh, also uh, finished my facade and got it inside the frame. That was a fantastic project. Loved it. I'm just going to back what Jensen said. I, I hope we get several more of those from AK moving forward. I'm going to probably get the other one, um, the the one with the bricks and the, the windows and everything, because it just had a great time. So did that and, uh, you know, participated in some of the online sessions as well with everybody that's pretty cool what uh, tj's doing with uh zach i had forgotten about that it'll be cool to see a collaboration and um as you guys know i went to colorado a couple weeks ago and left my 116 scale panzer one with jb and uh pretty excited to see kind of where that goes so maybe we ought to think about doing like a a collaboration build where we all send a model to somebody else to paint. That's, that's kind of a cool thing. So anyway, then been doing some uh, podcast and giving Andy all my money um, for things <laughs> that I didn't know that I needed to have and uh, got a, got a big box from him. So that was great. And then I helped spend uh, some of Doug's money. I sent him a link on uh, one of the, you know, cyber black, whatever I found on um, um, Amazon. They were selling like the one twelve scale Boba Fett for what, Doug, like 12 bucks or something. Yeah, I bought two. Yeah. Wow. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I think I linked him into some TIE fighters the week before that. So yeah, he's been, been uh, probably spending too much time shopping on there, but <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, yeah. And then, and then of course we, uh, we spoke with, uh, Martin and Spud and, uh, and, uh, you guys will hear that later in this episode. That was a lot of fun to have that conversation and, uh, Martin's latest video that's dropped. I think I've watched that like four times. I think it's yeah. one as much as I love his videos. I think that latest video might be, if not his best, it's certainly, I think one of his top three. I don't know if you guys remember, but way back in the attic of the plastic posse, we had a Spitfire uh, group build, a Mark <laughs> One group build, and I actually broke out my Tamiya Spitfire kit, and I've been building that, and I'm to where I'm going to need to start painting the wings are together, the cockpit's finished, and uh, man, that 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 newer tool Tamiya Spitfire Mark One, it might be the the best model kit I've ever built as far as the engineering and the design. It it's just 
amazing. Really, really great. So, well, we'll end up with me. I did finish my facade. I kind of went a little different. I went with a zombie kind of theme for mine. So I got it all used the Royal models, uh, one of their zombie figures. Found a whole bunch of uh, zombie posters from 28 Days and stuff like that from ETA, which is out of Italy. It's a company that does uh, posters and stuff like that, all different scales. So I got those. They look really good. Got it based up, and it's done. I'll just reiterate what everybody else has said. It was a blast. I had a great time. Um, So much fun. So much fun. And uh, I want to do more now. That's the thing. I want to get the other one. But I got the glass one first, so I want to go to the French one like John did with the, the bikes and stuff on the front. That was really cool. I might throw some pigeons on mine, but I couldn't find any zombie pigeons. So I was didn't pigeons. That's an interesting <laughs> idea. <laughs> yeah. Besides that, I have done some Warhammer vehicles, um, a Spartan, which is a big Horus Heresy uh, version of one of their land crawlers. Finished that, did a conversion of a guard uh, recovery vehicle. I combined two kits together for that. Um, Haven't painted either one of those yet. I did spend way too much uh, money at Andy's sale, like some other people. Got a couple turrets, got a couple vehicles. um, So I'm going to be busy for a while with those. So that's been fun. But other than that, um, I wasn't able to make uh, the 72 and 72 uh, right after Thanksgiving. The, The wife wanted to put all the Christmas stuff up and it looks like a uh, glitter bomb exploded downstairs so we have glitter everywhere and i was afraid to bring it up into the hobby room for a while so i've got my little cleaning going on up here so i don't have glitter on a model figure or something like that Um, but other than that it's been really fun i've been busy at work and so that's about it so now that we're all done with that uh done with talking about what we're doing let's go into our first discussion if you guys don't mind so this comes to us from Scott Wadigo, and he asked the posse, what do you want to do to improve in 2024? I looked through some of the answers of some of the people online that already replied to this. And I, I kind of said, you know, I said to everybody, this is, you know, this could be anything. It could be, you know, anything in your skill sets, your building techniques, your time building could be spending less less or more money, cleaning up your stash, finishing self cleans or anything like that. So I'm going to go first. What do I want to improve on in 2024? I want to build more armor. I haven't built armor in a, quite a while. I like 148 scale. I really like Tobias and AFB Club's 148 scale. Hobby Boss now has a 148 scale Panther A early that just came out. So I want to build that. That's what I want to do. I want to improve my 148 scale armor building. Uh, I really do enjoy doing that. And then I want to find more time. That's my biggest thing right now is is I need to find more time to build. And I've got to force myself to either get up a get up a little bit more early in the morning or work a little bit later at night on my stuff. I'm spending about 30 minutes a day mostly working on stuff. I want to jump that to an hour. So that's going to be my big thing I want to work on in 2024. And the last thing is I'm going to go to different shows. I'm not going to go to all the shows that we used to you know, go to. I want to try Never been to Amps Nationals. I'm going to go this year or in 2024. I want to go see that. Never been to Wonderfest. I'm going to go to Wonderfest in 2024. I'm really trying to, I want to, dare I say, you know, spread my wings a little bit, but I want to try these different shows. I've heard such great things about them. I want to go to Telford next year. I I really do. I want to see these. I want to see... I want to see Spud's models up close. I want to see the the work from England and Europe up close. I haven't been able to do that like some of the guys here have. And I feel that that's, that's something I need to work on. So with that, what do you think, Scott? What do you want to prove? I think for me, 
doing the facade, getting out of my comfort zone and actually using a paintbrush. Um, I want to do more of that. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to say I want to paint a figure. I want to be realistic. I'd be nice to paint a figure. Grant and I, um, I had sent him a video of Duncan uh, has this new figure that he painted. Um, it's a horse and it. I, I don't know what it's called. It's in, in uh, Warhammer 40K. It's the army that has all the pus and pustules. It's like the demon vacuum demon vacuum cleaner that tj built yeah it's uh it's it's uh, actually an age of sigmar but you're in the same area it's a, it's like a nurgle figure so yeah a nurgle, nurgle. a nurgle yeah. my apologies to all the warhammer uh, builders <laughs> out there it's just really really great i'd love to be able to paint something like that so yeah just um work on painting acrylics and and maybe doing some more oil oil work with actually with paint brushes so that's what i i'd like to do Sounds great. Uh, yeah, we we talked a little bit about that figure. They also make a figure, same Age of Sigmar, that is uh, a normal guy on a horse, too. So there's there's an opportunity for do, uh, duel there. Yeah, we'll uh, have to talk. Yeah. yeah, we should do something. Uh, uh, Doug, sorry. How you doing? What do you want to do for 2024? Um, I, I want to I want to enjoy this a little more. Yeah. And what I mean is I worry so many times I... Uh, I look at what I do and I think I do pretty dang good work, but I look at what other people are doing and I'm not even talking about the spuds of the world. I'm talking about most, you know, all of you guys and, and others that share with us. And I just think I can't, I can't do what they're doing and it stresses me out. And it sometimes takes some of the joy from, from the hobby. And I think I just don't want to worry about it. I want to improve where I can improve, but not stress over the fact that, that I can't do a three-tone camo on a on a German tank like JB can. I don't want to worry about that. I want to have fun doing it, which is one of the reasons I always go back to Star Wars. I also would love to make it to other shows too. That would be that would be a good uh, a good thing for me. But uh, in the meantime, oh, if anybody knows about any shows where I can also go walking out in the woods and look for snakes, that would be great. <laughs> All right, JB, what about you? Ah, uh, for me, I. It's a bunch of things. You know, in 2024, more time at the bench, as you mentioned. I think I've cracked that nut here in the month of November. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it really, it's just continuing to have fun and continuing to build unique projects. You know, I, I look at what I've built over the years and I'm like, man, no, nothing really stands out. I'd love to create pieces that evoke, dare I say, some emotion or inspiration. And storytelling is always a big one for me or lack thereof in my models. So definitely looking to achieve that. So it's a, you know, if I, if I had to pick one thing, I want to build a diorama, uh, a good one for that matter. You know, one that tells a story, one that's memorable, one that pushes my techniques to new, new bounds. And one, uh, you know, one, dare I say that inspires people. So that's, uh, that's 2024. I have a good idea for the one I want to do. And I think I, I just need to start executing on it. So yeah, good question. You know, it's always one of those good uh, end of year questions and looking forward into the next. Yeah, that was awesome that Scott uh, asked that and and we pinned it. Um, you know, at the end of the year, we all get kind of reflective, I think, but I thought it was really, really a good post. Definitely, definitely. There's some really good answers. And if you haven't seen it yet, you need to scroll down and check out some of the answers from all the guys. It's 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 really good. All right, TJ, up to you. So I know that I mean, the way he phrased this question is something you wanted to try to improve on. And mm -hmm. um, I couldn't really think of anything I like I, I wanted to improve, you know, besides everything, I, I want to get better at everything that I do. But um, the one thing that I want to do that I have not ever done 
is um I want to do a knocked out um tank. I've never done a knocked out tank. I've never done a knocked out anything really. And I, I feel like that's one of those things like I know when I went to SMC, all the all the ones that I really, really liked, not not all of them, but a lot of them were like derelicts or knocked out tanks, like like Pete Usher's whatever that weird Russian SPG thing that he did. Like that was a knocked out SPG. And you know, Chris Mettings did some knocked out like BMPs and T72s and other stuff on his big diorama. And mm-hmm. you know, I like knocked out vehicles. I think they're cool. And I've never done one, and I've had one in my mind that I've always wanted to do. Um, because I've never seen anyone do it. Now, someone might have done it before. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've just never seen it, but it's um it's honky tonk. It was a, a first armor division Sherman that was knocked out at Kasserine to oh. Tunisia. Yeah, so I, I'm fairly certain that was due to demolition charges after the battle, because I know that after the battle the Germans went through and um put demolition charges on pretty much all the vehicles to render them irrecoverable. Which is, I, I don't know if a lot of people know that about uh, armored vehicles, but like they typically don't get blown up in one shot, especially in like World War II. Like they would continually shoot until it was just, there was, it was burnt out and dead um, if they could. And then, you know, we did the same thing, the Americans and the Allies, you know. And then afterwards, we would go, a lot of the pictures you've probably seen of like knocked out German tanks in, in Europe were, pro- most of them were in that state after the allies took that area and then further disabled them. So they could not be recaptured or if they, they were taken that they were worthless, but yeah, it's a, it's a pretty famous picture. It's a, it's in four a one and the turret got knocked off and it's stuck through the, the driver's hatch. The, the gun is. Yeah. I, I love that picture. It's so cool. Yeah. And um, I've never seen anyone do one. Um, I think I was talking to maybe Sam Dwyer about it. He said he thinks he's seen one in 72nd scale. Uh, but I haven't seen that, so I I don't know. So, yeah, that's that's like the one thing that I really want to to I guess improve, aka do and learn how to do. Um, I'm slowly collecting everything that I need. I've got like 95 percent of all the stuff I need. There's like one or two things that I got to get that or figure out how I'm going to do to uh properly display the tank in that state. Because yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be a lot of work, I think. But we'll see. Yeah. That's cool. I, I like that picture of the, the barrel sticking into the vehicle, the turret, and like a lollipop sticking out of the top. Yeah, that's that's a great shot. And Sam Dwyer's uh, Panther, that SMC, was really nice, too. Oh, uh, yep. Yeah, that was, that's Don't another forget one. Sam. All right, Jensen, you're up. Uh, how long do you got? Um, <laughs> All day, buddy. It's one of those. There's, I know last year I was like, oh, I want to buy less and do more. This year I've done nothing. But I have bought less. Anything I've bought, I think I've bought at shows, which... I think best time to buy stuff, really. I've not really bought myself anything modeling related this year, unless it was at shows. So that's that's one thing I've forcefully been improved on. But when it comes to modeling stuff, I don't know. One thing I learned doing this facade, and it was something I've been guilty of for years, is like being really unforgiving for, uh, of myself with modeling mistakes. So like if I do something that doesn't look right, or I make an error, or whatever on a model, I really beat myself up about it. Mm-hmm. And I think, oh, I've ruined it. Like, oh, I'm done with this project because it doesn't look right. Whereas with this facade, I did that a lot of times. So I was just like, so what? Just paint over it, repaint it. Like, why Why is it such a big deal? It really isn't. It's just a model. If you screw it up, it, it doesn't matter. Um, so that's something I want to continue to improve on. Like, just really forgiving my modeling mistakes. Because we all make mistakes and anyone who says they don't. So there's that. I want to do a lot more figure painting. I've noticed... I, I have improved my acrylic blending and like gradients with acrylics and that uh, on figures and such. 
And I also did it on the, the, the windows of this facade. I have improved on that, but there is still, there's still techniques I need to learn. And it's not really so much as thinning my paint. That's not it. It's my handling of the brush. Really want to improve that. Also, understanding more to do with light and shadows and stuff, because mm. again, I'll start doing shadows and lighting on my figures. It looks good. I start trying to quote unquote improve it. And all of a sudden they've all vanished because mm. I keep blending them all together. So it's just, again, the contrast is gone. Mm. Uh, so understanding, and that's not just on figures, that's on everything. If I'm modulating or doing any sort of scene or just anything, anything with light, uh, I want to improve on that. And here's an obvious one. Just do more. Like, this, like I said, this year I've practically done nothing. I've, I've done bits and pieces. I've done the projects like AK of Supply does. Loved them. I do like projects with purpose. That's fun. But um, yeah, just the most simple one. Do more modeling. There you go. That's that's the big one. The Plastic Fossing Podcast is sponsored by Tankcraft. In addition to their awesome cutting mats, Tankcraft also makes some incredible scale modeling tools for your workbench. Want to keep extra thin cement off your bench and in the bottle where it belongs? Check out Tankcraft Glue Base, designed to stop glue spills in their tracks. The glue base is made from solid milled aluminum and comes with a stable rubber base pad and can accommodate most square and round cement bottles. And while you're there, check out their line of cutting mats and other unique modeling tools. Remember, Posse listeners get 15% off their first order by using the code POSSE15. So head on over to tankcraft.com. That's T-A-N-K-R-A-F-T.com. All right. I really appreciate that, guys. I thought it was a good question. Um, so I'd like to share it with everybody. So now we're going to move over to TJ, and he's going to give us an update on the Operation Overlord group build. Yeah, so I just um, want to do a quick reminder that we are um, co-hosting a, a very extensive group build with our friends over at the Model Geeks for the Madison uh, 2024 IPMS Nats. We have a group for it, so please just look for Operation Overlord group build on um, Facebook and go ahead and join up. And the other thing we want to remind you is that it's not just for the group build. It's also going to be an IPMS special interest group, a SIG, so... It's going to be everything related to um, Operation Overlord in the uh, Allied invasion of Nazi-occupied France. So go check it out. Uh, join up if you want to contribute. Just you know, shoot me a message or you can comment on the pinned post uh, what you would like to contribute and get building. All right. Sounds great. Uh, that's great. All right. We're going to go back to another section that we haven't done for a little bit. It's We're going to talk about models we liked on the Plastic Posse webpage. So I'm going to start off. I took Mercedes Starmox. Uh, he did a Panther uh, Os D, the Tamaya 135th kit in the early Kursk theme. Uh, it's very, it's uh, Goku grabbing green. Uh, I love that that model. He did a great job on it. I really like his tones. He muted out the green a lot, which really looks good. Because if you look at some of the, the images, the, the green looks really muted. Like they put it on in the field, which I'm pretty sure they did. Really good. It's got a little bit of battle damage on it, but it's just, you know, he did a fantastic job, and I really, really, really like what he did with that. All right, Jensen, what do you got? Uh, thank you. Uh, I um, This was only posted two hours ago before we started recording. It's uh, Oliver Krebs 109, beautifully painted. Second World War German Luftwaffe camouflages. So hard to do with the modeling and the feathered edges and, and making it not look deliberately messy or obvious. It's just one of those paint schemes that are really hard to do. And I found that the feathered edges of the of the intricate like snake pattern and the modeling and the hard edge camo as well on the upper wings and upper surface, just really well done. Again, really smooth paint, 
really well painted the colors look like vibrant and poppy yeah it's just it's just all around good modeling really really stood out because i know just how difficult it is to do that luftwaffe paint schemes that the germans just love to throw on their aircraft yeah that, that's a beautiful paint job i swear to god people that can do that paint scheme or like that are just working with the devil i swear it's so not easy yeah he's brought a lot of depth to that bf 109e you know, the horizontal stabilizers and the the wings where you have the hard edge camo, mm-hmm. um, you know, you spent a lot of work on those tones uh, to vary them and model them. I mean, it's almost a, an approach you might see maybe more on an armor build than an aircraft as far as the, the way the paint is finished, but it looks really sharp and the sharp edge lines are sharp and the, you know, more freehand kind of stuff is a lot softer. I think he's really achieved that balance with his airbrush. It's really well done. Yeah. Uh, ni- nice, nice model. Beautiful work. TJ, what about you? So I chose John Hale's, it's an M4 composite, is the Cupid boxing from Asuka, and he's working on the uh, the pigments on the lower hall. He was uh, posted this morning, and then uh, we were actually chatting about it in private messages uh, after he posted it because I commented on it. And uh, John's a really good builder. He's a uh, fellow Shermanaholic like uh, <laughs> I am. Uh, probably one of the, the most prolific Sherman builders out there. Uh, John's, he's cool as hell. And and his work is, is oh, it's so good. I, I love it. I always like it when I see pigments being done because it's not something I do a lot because I'm scared of them. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that that was mine. It was really cool. He's he's hopefully helped me uh, work up a little courage to do some pigments on the one I'm working on eventually. But yep. So yep. Tip of the hat to uh, John Hale and his uh, cool ass uh, Cupid uh, M4 Sherman composite. That's nice work. All right, Doug, what do you got? I chose uh, Keith Hayes. Keith Hay, his Trumpeter 135th scale, uh, SA6 Gainful. Uh, that surface air missile, it's just, it's beautiful. I just, it's really cool. It's a, it's a very different subject. You don't really see people building these. It's an older kit, um, but he's done a fine job. The overall, it's on, you know, you armor guys would probably be able to tell me what the chassis is and everything. But either way, this is this is very cool. I like his overall finish. I like his subject matter. And and I really appreciate what he was able to accomplish with this. Old, not not such a great kit, but he made it beautiful. That's true. Very true. All right, John, what about you? Got to give a shout out to Martin and his big M51 Sherman. Conveniently, uh, was in my basement three weeks ago, and I'm happy to see it being built. Great work, Martin. Uh, You improve with every build and love the texture templates that you've experimented with. So keep it up, and we look forward to your next project. Nice work. Scott. Grant, I'm going to talk about a tale of two Steves. First one is I have been loving following along with our good buddy, Steve Baker, as he builds the new Tamiya F35B. Man, he's taking those bays and all those, uh, you know, the fans. And, you know, from a modeling perspective, the F35B is just, you know, a real canvas to work with. But Steve's just crushing it. Um, He's been sending those out to the plastic posse group so check those out really really nice and then um steve schaefer's mang 132nd scale captured uh me 163 comet he opened it up into sections removed the you know the rear fairing the engine fairings the cockpits open and he threw what looks pretty convincing to me um a slapdash british paint job and even went to the uh trouble 
of replicating like paint runs on where he's broken the aircraft apart on the fuselage formers he's got like sloppy paintwork where the paints run down to show that you know the british you know just kind of slapped a, a captured scheme on it while they were evaluating a, a nice little touch He's got it on a little wooden base. Um, just a nice build. Uh, you don't see that subject in captured markings that often. So uh, well done, Steve. Uh, really uh, nice work. Yeah, that that is some really, both Steves are doing fantastic work. I love Steve Baker's comment or someone's comment about basically the F-35 is like painting a tank with an interior and making a jet at the same time. So that that is definitely going to be an interesting build. Uh, all right. So Jensen's going to give us an update on upcoming model shows. Indeed, I am. So, first of all, we have the third annual Winter Blitz show, which will be held on Saturday, January 20th, 2024, at the Museum of the American GI in College Station, Texas. More details can be found at www.winterblitz.com. Then we have Model Fiesta 42, which will be held on Saturday, February 10th, at the New Brunsfels Convention Center in New Brunsfels, Texas. This year's theme is All Things British, and rightfully so. Uh, More details are available at modelfiesta.com. The 2024 Model Mania show will be held February 17th and 18th at the Museum of Fly in Seattle, Washington. Check out the details on Facebook on the Northwest Scale Models page. Then we have the AMPS 2024 International Convention, which will, which will be held April 11th till the 13th at the Century Center in South Bend, Indiana. Details at www.ampsarmor.org. Grant, you had you had Jensen read those just for the theme for Model Fiesta, didn't you? Oh yeah, yeah, that's because he would be happy. So we want Jensen happy. <laughs> that pleases the British Museum. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. All right, let's move into some feedback with Doug. What do you got for us, Doug? All right, we've got a couple here. I'm going to read. Uh, Michael Geyer uh, wrote in and said, what an amazing podcast episode. I don't know how you guys keep putting out great episodes all the time. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to Adam Wilder, and I will certainly be on the lookout for his book. I'm always trying to find ways to become better. What I enjoyed and connected with most was the discussion with John Everett. His comments about embracing the suck while hiking just triggered a more positive approach to me. I've only recently come back to the hobby after having a family, and to be honest, I was extremely inexperienced and very basic. This, I think, has contributed to my hesitation in completing models for the fear of ruining them. Embracing the suck has helped me move past the fear and work towards just completing models in general. I can relate to this new mantra as I was a Queen Scout, which is an Eagle Scout equivalent, in Australia. I remember many hikes through the rain just like John. I had the pleasure of meeting John Bonani and Scott at High Plains Con 32 early November. It was great meeting and chatting with you both. I must admit, I was fangirling a little when I saw you both walk in about mid-morning. I was the Australian guy working on the Sherman Calliope from Monogram. I was nervous chatting with you both, but I certainly glad that I did. Anyway, he goes on to say, you guys are amazing. Have a wonderful holiday, and I look forward to many episodes and seeing you at the next show in Colorado Springs, maybe. Well, I'm glad you met John and Scott. I'm sorry I didn't approach you. I was there. I was kind of uh, maybe shy. His you were exit, buying all the Y wings. Yeah, I was you buying were all the Star seriously, Wars models. All two for, of them. For the record, Doug was scoring. We walked. We walked into Cole yeah, Park. And there's a box of Tamiya kits. And I'm not talking about the 1970s kits. These are brand new kits. Doug's like, poof, like flies on you know what, man. He's got a one of those Ukrainian leopards. Doug, what did what'd you? Was that like 20 bucks? bucks? Yeah, 26 bucks. And, and, I got the, and I got the Sturmovic with the Jeep. 
and I got that for 33. Jeez. Yeah. Then we get to the show and he shoves John and I like in the backs. And as we're recovering, he's like hitting the vendors one by one and scoring deals. No, no, in all seriousness, um, it, it was, it was a pleasure to talk to you, Mike, about your modeling. And, and it was really, you know, we, we picked up that you didn't have the standard Colorado accent right away. And, uh, it was great to meet you and shake your hand and, uh, look forward to your contributions here. 100%. All right. Boz Slots. He says, I am at least an episode behind, but would love to give you my appreciation about episode 81, specifically the SMC special. Indeed, every model should once in his life visit SMC. It provides such a massive amount of energy and inspiration. I did hear TJ and John talk about their visit to the Arnhem area and especially their visit to uh, the Band of Brothers places between there and Veldhoven. If you would like, it would be a great honor for you for me to show you some places around Eindhoven next year, which feature in the earlier part of Market Garden, like the Drop Zone, Sone Bridge, and the Neunen Battles. Please continue with this great podcast. It really helps to sit more on the bench. Boss, 100%. We will take you up on that. That would be yep. fantastic. Yep. I'm going to hold you to that. Yeah, for sure. And a special shout out to boss. You know, he's been a great, uh, I'd say ambassador to the hobby in Europe. He posts a lot of pictures from a lot of shows and a lot of events he goes to, whether it's reference material, model shows. I know he made the trip over to Telford and cataloged that and his trip through the channel and they drove over. So just really thankful that boss is a listener and supporter and contributor, more importantly, uh, to the posse group. So boss, we'll definitely take you up on it. Look forward to it. Pencil us in. We will be there. Let's just plan on Thursday before the show right now. So sign us up. Are you a, are you on the Triple P Facebook page? If you haven't joined yet, why not now? It's a great community with lots of new posts every day from all of our friends in the posse. Come share your work and ask your questions. Check out John Gray's progress on his winter stew or Stephen Nelson's TBM Avenger. Ask your questions like Zach Grizzle did when he asked about how when the Soviets phased out uh, 4BO and got great information from people like Stephen Reed, who said, you cannot make a functioning nuclear reactor without using plastic cups. Your answers <laughs> await. Come and join us. Steve Steve Reed would know that. He is literally a, like a nuclear technician. <laughs> That is what he does. And that is simply scary that they use plastic cups. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So send us your feedback and more. And uh, you can reach us at uh, plastic posse podcast at gmail.com. Are you a member of the plastic posse group page on Facebook? You should be. Remember that you can send your feedback and suggestions to us via email at plastic posse podcast at gmail.com or through any social media platform we have. All right. Well, now it's time for our main feature. Grant and I were uh, fortunate enough to sit down on uh, last Friday with a couple of good friends. You've heard them on the show before, Spud Murphy and uh, Martin Kovach, uh, a.k.a. Uncle Night Shift, and uh, kind of did a catch up with both of them. It was great. Turns out, as you'll hear in the interview, they have a connection from way back. Get yourself some snacks and some water, stay hydrated and uh, enjoy enjoy the feature.
welcome in everybody to another conversation with the Plastic Posse podcast. I am here today with my co-host uh, Grant Mayberry. How you doing, Grant? I'm doing good. How you doing today? I'm doing excellent. I think we're going to have a lot of fun today. Also today, we have two of our incredible friends. Uh, they've both been on uh, the podcast before. We're huge fans of their work. First of all, from the UK, we have uh, John Spud Murphy joining us. Spud, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for having me back on. It's always good to talk to you. You know, uh, we're waiting for uh, John to get his hands on that new Andy's uh, 116th scale Achilles. And I think he might be able to do something with that. Um, So that'll be great. And then we also have um, our favorite uncle, the one and only Martin Kovach. Martin, how are you doing? It's been a while since we talked to you, buddy. Yeah, it was my friends. Thanks for having me. Like like seeing you and talking to you every time, it just puts a smile on my face. So I'm very grateful to be here. Well, the feeling's mutual and uh, we we got to get get that voice out on podcasts more. It's it's perfectly made for this uh, format. Andy. <laughs> but, but you know, that's a topic for another day. Well, uh, let's start out kind of before we started recording, we were sort of reminiscing and, uh, you know, asking these guys if they've ever had, you know, a conversation together. And uh, Spud, I'll start with you. But I think uh, you guys know each other from back in the uh, publishing days. Um, yes, we do. Yeah, yeah, very long time ago. With uh, when I was editing Model Military International, um, contacted Martin to ask if he'd like to contribute an article um, for the magazine, and and kind of that's where it all started, really. So yeah, he did a, a, an amazing first article, and it was one of those where it was like, I need this guy as a regular contributor, you know. And it, models was model was great. The article was fantastic. So couldn't ask for any more when you're an editor. Martin, now what was that like? Uh, was that uh, one of your first articles you ever had published? It was the first model I posted on Missing Links. And pretty much a few days after I got an email from John, like, can you provide me with an article? Of course, there was joy, but there was also stress because I didn't take any step-by-step photos. I was publishing it on our local modeling forums. So there was nothing of that. He said, no, no, it's okay. It can, it can be just finished photos and just make the article longer or something. And yeah, it, it was just a lot of joy. And then I remember when, when he sent me the magazine, it was really early days. I think I, I think I just started university. So I was very active and very cringeworthy on Facebook. And I remember taking that photo <laughs> of the magazine on my bed in my, in my bedroom and uh, writing a caption, something like, Martin, your career as an internationally recognized modeler has just begun or something. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That that was the, you know, kind of your first collaboration between you guys. But if we could, maybe uh, let's uh, start out with uh, sort of what you've both been up to recently. Um, Martin, tell us kind of what you've been up to and, and maybe, you know, what your near future plans might be if you can talk about them. Yeah, I, offic- I officially became insane from bricks. I just completely <laughs> lost my mind. Like my, my brain consists of bricks. And yeah, because I, I was finishing the hallway in my in my house. And as you can imagine, it was all raw concrete and bricks. And then I had this huge diorama that I just finished the other week, which is this huge water mill with a water wheel, a small creek, a Chevy truck loaded with with sacks of flour and everything, so that was it was it was the biggest di- diorama I've done so far, and 
probably ever because it's just it's just too huge for me. And yeah, the, the water mill again, lots of bricks, but it was a commercial kit, so I just had to paint them. And you know, what's the best way to relax when you finish a project with lots of bricks? Start another project about which is completely just about bricks. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's what I've been doing uh, just the minutes before I joined you here. <laughs> <laughs> all about bricks we'll we'll spread uh what have you been up to for the last couple of months i was finishing the 116th and these hobby sherman really to get ready for um taking it to scale model challenge in holland um so that was kind of a project up to the 11th, 11th hour especially with the figures um and then returning from the show i was almost at a bit of a loose end because that project's been on my bench for 11 months and I've been obviously looking forward to the Achilles that's going to come out. So with the sort of time I've had in between and having a bit of a couple of week break from modeling, um, I decided to pull down two shelf queens, the uh, RFM Sturm Tiger, um, to carry on with the ambush scheme, which a bit like Martin, I was going insane with doing dashes and little cutout marks and masking tape all over it. Got to the point where I'd finished the base painting then actually started to watch one of Martin's videos on how he weathered the uh, Yag Tiger. And I was like, oh, this is out of my comfort zone. So uh, I then pulled down the M48, Vietnam M48, which was more in my comfort zone because it's green and it's dusty. So <laughs> I feel I'm in my safe zone doing that one. So I've been working on that recently the last few days. Man, the dust on that is incredible. I mean, heavy dust is like heavy mud or anything else is really hard to pull off convincingly and uh and it's really really sharp what you pulled off as far as the variation of the intensity of the dust and you know the top versus the bottom of of things oh thank you martin will we ever see a 116th scale uh tank or vehicle on on your bench not a chance <laughs> I'm, I'm already struggling with with storage space for my finished models and I'm purposely choosing from now on the smallest tanks and the most storage friendly projects, something that I can hang on the wall probably or something because yeah, there's just not enough space. And one thing, 16th model, phew, I will probably have to park it in, in my garage or something. I don't know. <laughs> John, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you had out the uh, main body of the Yog Tiger in one sixteenth scale at uh, Telford recently. I did, yeah, and uh, that's been a real eye-opener and made me think this. I can't really build many more, exactly <laughs> as Martin's just said. The space to store the things is, you know, um, each one now lives in one of these click-top storage boxes, and it's, they do take an awful lot of room. Yeah, I think the Yag Tiger, well, not that there's much in that scale bigger than the Yag Tiger, but, um, yeah, I think I, I'm probably going to maybe focus a few more 35th-scale kits and do the Achilles and uh, and then see where it goes from there. But there again, there may be something new that'll just go ooh, shiny. And then I want to build that as well. I want to put both of you on the spot. I'll start with Martin on this. But Martin, um, what's one of uh, Spud's builds that you you kind of have maybe taken some inspiration from or that you really thought was uh, kind of special? Um, I hope this won't sound lame, but pretty much anything where he has a go with dust effects because that's just that's something else i've seen other people try to take the same route as john uh you can see the influence but it's 
it's at least so far it's never been exactly that either it was too smooth or too greedy or or something but john he just he gets it right and it's it's a very foreign style to me because i was always about contrast you know and stuff like that and this is just this feels this feels natural like natural but raw like you're you're afraid to touch those models because you're afraid you're good your fingers will get dusty as well you know <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's, i remember john when he was sending me photos of that stuart and in, in 116 scale and before that i think it was a century in in 135 mm -hmm. scale yeah. yeah so yeah that centurion that was the dust was mwah. No, yeah. and, and the steward, uh, that's something I'm not going to say that you took a turn for the better, of course, um, maybe just expanded because of the scale and everything. Like it suddenly opened up so many new possibilities for you. And when you, you were sending me those images, I was like, like, what? Like, like you know, <laughs> get out of here. Like uh, those tiny scratches from a loose chain, you know? Okay. Okay. This, this is way above my pay grade right here. <laughs> Well, those are those are good choices. That centurion, uh, I agree. I think your uh, chef's kiss uh, compliment is right on. All right, all right, Spud. You know, I and you, you got a lot to choose from here, right? But uh, which one of Martin's builds uh, kind of has influenced you, or you've taken inspiration from? Um, actually, even from the very first article Martin sent in, because I just thought the finish, the style, the weathering was just. I was, I was like. Oh, it was almost a little bit doing it for selfish reasons because I was like, well, if Martin writes an article, then I'll know how he's done it and then I can copy his techniques and then publish it as an article at the same time. But um, to be honest, um, I've always been an avid watcher and my Friday, highlight of my Friday was getting home and seeing what the latest night shift video would be and whether it be the figures, the figures have helped me massively, I have to say, because I've always, always avoided figures and it's given me a new fan confidence. Also, even the, the, the buildings, because now I've started to look at hot wire cutters and I'm thinking, right, where can I buy blue foam from? And, and then thinking, right, that's going to have to really be for 135th scale and not 116th scale because 116th scale dioramas are just going to be yeah. ridiculous. But um, weirdly, one of the ones I really, really like is the, the the truck that Martin's just finished. I know he didn't enjoy it, and it was yeah. But I thought the tones, the colours, the the way the the rust effects work on that olive drab, and then just things like the flower um, that's escaped from the the, you know, the flower sacks on the the flatbed is just so many really really nice subtle details in it. And yeah, so but. To be honest, all of them have been really influential to me. Well, I mean, there's a lot to a lot to like with Martin's work. You know, we we twisted his arm behind his back and uh, shipped him a mat kit. Part of that little scene that he put it in, he did a whole bunch of those uh, sandbags, same kind of thing, you know. And yeah. I, you know, I, I'm going to sound like a total nerd here myself, but I could sit there and watch Martin sculpt bags of whatever for hours, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, just it's amazing that that he can make them that make them so well and and paint them to look so lifelike. So, so Grant, um, before we uh, we move on, uh, what's a, a piece of Spud's work that maybe that uh, you you kind of really enjoy or you've taken inspiration from oh it's easy for me the centurion right off the bat 
Martin hit it on the head, the, the dusting on the Centurion. It's always been one of my favorite models. It's really a good, it's represents, to me, it represents uh, uh, one of those models that just, it looks so real. And, you know, the, the M5 is, is beautiful. All of his stuff is beautiful, but that the Centurion for me was just the, the nail in the coffin to say that was for in a good way sorry didn't mean that in a bad way uh but it was <laughs> uh uh it, it was just one of those things that just it, it reached out to me i guess and you know for martin and i'm gonna go back old school for martin because i love the mini, your very first one your mini art ball you know that was when i found your your youtube videos that was the one i, I found and that process you went through and and you were you were one of the weren't you were the first one that actually walked a person through how to do the scratches, how to do the fading, how to do the mud. And when I found that, um, for me, it, it was it was very much changing in my my modeling. It, it made me look at it in a different way, of an advanced, more advanced way, uh, more, you know, looking at it as a more of a processed way. Um, so I, I, I that would have definitely have to be my number one, if not that one. I really like your um, 148 scale Tamaya Crusader. Uh, the the sand and black one you did and yeah. the black you did a really that was really interesting and i really found that very an interesting model you built so that's that's mine steve or scott yeah i'll take those answers those are okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know one thing uh you know we've talked uh we teased a little bit about um, with Spud talking about that one sixteenth scale uh, um, Achilles, which is going to be great. But, you know, looking forward, uh, Martin, maybe start with you. What's something that you haven't built yet that maybe you have in your stash or something that's coming out or maybe something that you wish were coming out? What's Give us an idea of what you'd like to, to do moving forward. Well, I don't want to spoil anything because... I'm working on it right now. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> but, but it's completely scratch built, so <laughs> that probably doesn't count. Wow. But no, no, it's not a tank. It's not a tank. It's just it's just a building. <laughs> but I don't know. There's there's just so much, you know. And sometimes I uh, look at my stash and think about like what should be the next project. And I feel like, man, like I'm, I'm all set, you know, I always wanted to build those models and I have them here. It's just a matter of getting to them. So I don't really know. I, I could think of, I could think about it for half an hour and maybe I probably wouldn't get an answer for you. <laughs> we don't want to spoil it either, either <laughs> since your, your channel. So. Well, Spud, what about you? I mean, uh, and and you can't say the Achilles because that's cheating, right? <laughs> right. But what what, what else? Uh, what else is is coming, or would you like to to come out that you'd like to work on? Um, I think I'd really like, which is not available, um, would be a one sixteenth scale M one one three. Oh, I've always liked those, and I think from a business point of view, it would be a huge seller because every nation has used them. There's so many variants. So many cool color schemes, been used in so many different conflicts. So the opportunities are sort of limitless. And it's not an unreasonable size in 116 yeah. scale. Yeah, the size um, is great. And and then I'm thinking purely for myself would be I'd have to do something like uh, uh, Vietnam, ACAV. That would be like the ultimate, just really for the uh, being able to do all the dust effects and all the stowage as well. You know, that I always love doing the stowage that really, I feel, brings them model to life so that would be kind of one that would be right up there i think that's a great great suggestion go ahead mark i thought about one 
<laughs> I think I think it already came out, uh, but the new Panzer IV from Tamiya from North Africa. Oh, um, because when when I looked at the box contents and what I saw over the years that the new Tamiya figures are like becoming really good, like competitive yeah. with resin figures, like yeah. they're really nice. Tamiya basically is giving you a diorama in the box because you have a new tooling Panzer IV. Uh, six figures and even a mo- motorcycle, I think. So you could just get the get the kit, wait for I don't know four four months for Voyager to release a complete photo which set for it. You know, get some three D printed tracks, and you have a diorama in a box. Agreed. That, that and like you were saying, the Tamaya figures over the last couple of years have been f- fantastic. Um, the faces alone, what they're doing. We have a friend of ours that works for their that's a friend of the pod who works for Tamaya USA. And we've sat and talked to him a couple of times and I'm lucky enough to be out in Southern California where I can see those guys every once in a while. And they're doing 3d scans of human faces for it now. So, you know, that that's what they decided to do. It, it's, it's unbelievable. Their figure sets are phenomenal, but I, I agreed, you know, you're, you're looking at a figure, you're looking at a diorama in a box. I mean, you just, all you gotta do is make some signs and put it in a, put a, you know, a fuel or a 55 gallon drum out there with some signs stuck to it and you're, yep. you're set to go. I, I want to ask uh, John real quick. You saw the DOS works new uh, Puma 116 scale yeah. Puma. How's that? Is that, that looks like a good kid. It did look really, really nice. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I know there's, there's been some murmurings on, you know, online about angles and stuff like that. But, to, but to me, it looked like a puma. It looked great. Obviously, yeah. it was only like a early test sample, but it was like, mm-hmm. yeah, really cool looking vehicle. So futuristic. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I really hope that will be a, a big seller. Yeah, it's a huge vehicle too. It's mm. I was actually surprised about the size of that when I saw one for the first time, the real one. Look, cool. the two five one's the same. The, you know, that's yeah. deceptively large. You know, it, it, you, you get so used to thinking of it as such a small vehicle in one thirty fifth scale. Mm-hmm. When you see it on one sixteenth, it is actually a really big lump of plastic. Yeah, it is. It is. I like your idea of the one one three. Like you said, though, because it was used. It's used. Well, it's used today in the mm. Ukraine. And, you know, it's a phenomenal vehicle. Uh, I've, I've crewed one before myself, and, you know, it, it, it's a beautiful little vehicle. So the heater doesn't work all the time. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, other than that, it's a great little vehicle. But I'd like to see that 116. Andy, work if you're listening, please, please, please. <laughs> no, like like you guys, I mean, I think space is important. Like I, uh, I really like uh, you know, I like I have an FT seventeen and a and also one of the little Panzer two Ausfeld the Lukes. Um, I like the really small vehicles in one sixteenth scale. Um, so I'm hoping they'll do a Hetzer. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> Recently, a guy that we all know, Mike Rinaldi, did a video and uh, said some things, and uh, I think some came across uh, better than others, but I think uh, maybe boiling it down and you, and uh, really want to get your both of your thoughts on this. But, you know, essentially, I think uh, buried down in the video, what we what what Mike was saying was that, you know, people aren't taking as many chances and that there's not as much innovation and, and uh, new techniques and things like there were maybe maybe 10 years ago. John, I'll st- I'll start with you, but maybe you know what did you think of of the video? Um, I assume you've seen it, and you know what Mike's saying here. Yeah, I, I certainly saw the video and spoke spoke to Mike in person at SMC. Um, th- there are some valid points. Um, maybe the way it was worded could have been a little bit more diplomatic. Um, I was, you know, I th- thought long and hard about this, and 
you know, the way the economy is at the moment and the way the cost of kits are now, you know, if you put all this money, all this, you know, photo etched 3D printed parts and stuff into a, into a model, you're probably more tempted to play safe with it rather than start pushing boundaries and experimenting because you've put an awful lot of time and effort into that model and, you know, and cost. So maybe that can hold certain people back. But I think also saying as well that um, everybody's attained, you know, the levels have all come up now. And I think the models now, you know, from my own experiences at SMC, so many models were so incredibly realistic. I'm just struggling to see where you'd actually go from here other than them to start to not, not realistic because you're trying to push a boundary that doesn't really need pushing. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. And uh, that's a point I'm going to want to circle back to the kind of the artistic versus realism. But uh, Martin, what what did you think of the video and, and the points that that Mike was making? Yeah, so I made a couple of points here in my notes. And first of all, um, I was completely okay with the presentation. Uh, I saw that many people were downright offended by it. I, I didn't see anything there. Maybe it's because I'm not, not a native speaker, so I didn't catch all those nuances. But I think it was perfectly okay. It was it was real raw. And, you know, there's, there's very little to disagree with, with uh basically but on the other hand i was thinking like um not not like who cares but you know if i, w- I was asking if it's really that important because okay let's take, let's talk about uh taking our risks because i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna be honest i kind of felt guilty myself after listening to that video like i found myself in there a little and because uh I kind of like to play it safe and maybe be just a little bold here and there. But when I was finishing my last diorama, I remembered that video and thought like, okay, try playing it safe. If you spend two months working on a diorama, eight to 10 hours a day, and then you are about to finish it by pouring resin all over it. And you know, resin, no matter how good you are, it's unpredictable. Like th- there's this uh, Asian modeler on YouTube, Thalasso Hobbier, who only does epoxy resin dioramas. And even he made a blunder in one of his dioramas and he admitted to it. Like, yeah, it was my mistake. It wasn't the resin's fault. So it can happen. And, you know, when, when you have this finished piece and you're dangling a cup full of resin and it's sort of dripping down and suddenly you think what would happen if it dripped on the road for example you know there's no going back so yeah even even with these things you you sort of take risks but you know when we're talking about taking a risk like really pushing the boundaries like 15 years ago like many people said uh pretty much everything that could be explored already has been explored so i think it will be more of a case of uh evolution than the next revolution and the other thing like okay he also says that the big names in in the hobby they sort of have this sort of responsibility you know like setting the standard or pointing in the in the right direction or something um again I used to have this perspective as well when I was younger and basically 
I was single. I didn't have any problems in life and I could focus just on modeling. That was my whole life. My all, all of my problems were just about models, but you know, life's changed for people. You know, people start families, people, you know, find girlfriends or maybe their parents get sick or something. So suddenly, even, even if you're, you're trying to push it, you just don't have the energy or be it physical or mental energy to just to think about some new ways. And, you know, a lot of people who pushed the the envelope back in the day those were industry professionals so you know it was like really their job they were in touch with other professionals they could brainstorm ideas during lunch breaks you know so it was sort of in there and uh, the thing about improving at all at, at all costs uh, i'm taking it out of context uh, it's not improving at all costs but you know striving to improve with every model or every year or something uh, it can lead to some bad things. And, it's, and it sort of reminded me of this quote from this book series, Three Body Problem. It's a, it's a sci-fi book series. And there was this character who, the moment they realized the threat for humanity, he was always about progress. Like, we need to move forward no matter the cost. And his efforts pretty much led to nowhere, at first at least. So, you know, trying really hard can actually push you back and it might not be for, for the better good. Uh, I mean, we can talk more about that. I don't want to go on for too long, but those are my, my two takeaways. Spud, you want to respond to that at all? No, I think, I think that that's a really, really valid point. You know, um, exactly that. You know, sometimes if you try too hard, you know, you end up going backwards. Absolutely. So I think like, and like, said before you know unless someone's a chemist and concocts some new miracle product that takes us down a route that no one knew you existed um it is just a gradual evolution and you know with sort of social media now and youtube channels and there's so many people posting so much so much really really sort of informative information it's what it's doing is it's brought everybody up rather than just the one or two that have shot above everybody else. Yeah, so, kind of that idea of the the rising tide that lifts all boats, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. The, the, there's so much collaboration. You know, we we get to see um, as as you've spent the last eleven months working on that Sherman. We've been able to see what you've done and how you've done it, and we get to see Martin's videos, and we get to see you know other other creators, both inside the armor community and outside the the community and, and and we get asked questions and, and and get pointers you know you know martin has a a library of 3d printed 3d printing stl files that as he works on a diorama if you're a patron that you know you can use i mean it's 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 really great i also kind of wanted to touch on uh martin you you brought up this this kind of this idea of you know now versus 10 years ago the other thing is as far as innovation, I think that's got to be affected by the fact that the the technology of the tools that we have in our hands, the kits that we have today aren't the kits that we had 10 or 15 years ago. Those kits a lot of times needed a lot of scratch building, a lot of 
you know, um, aftermarket to even kind of make them viable. You know, to Martin's point, you know, sometimes now the manufacturers, the the quality of the figures, the quality of the tanks or vehicles themselves is significantly better. And and I would also add the paints, the pigments, the the weathering materials that we have access to. I I think. Are, are so so different than they were 10 or 15 years ago. How would you guys respond to that, Martin? I mean, yeah, that's true. But uh, I kind of uh, felt the same way when Mike was talking about the good old days um, that, sure, we don't currently have a figure in 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 this community like the the next Adam Wilder, someone who because I remember it as well when when I saw newest model or newest uh, photo of, of just progress photo from Adam on Missing Links, each time I just I could spend two hours observing every little corner of that model and thinking how in the world did he manage to do that? You know there was that sense of wonder like how is this even possible? When some of us are struggling to apply a pin wash without melting the base coat, you know, and there's someone here making these ultra realistic greedy models that look like they're made out of steel. But again, I think it's just it's it's the circumstances. It's how the industry has moved, uh, sort of transformed. And all I can say to this is just give it time. Someone will emerge, you know, but it will happen naturally. Uh, it, it probably won't happen if you push someone uh, and tell them like, listen, man, you have potential, but you should try harder, you know, and you'll achieve something. So, yeah, I think I think it, we just need to give it time because, again, and even if not, because here's the thing, like things go in sort of waves. There's there's a curve of improvement then the curves uh, sort of levels out there's a little bit, bit of stagnation well stagnation other people will you know also take that technique and learn it then then again the curve will move up a little some a little bit of progress maybe it'll go steeper because there's some new innovation and again it levels out and maybe it'll stagnate and maybe it'll it'll stay that forever you know and I'm totally fine with that because I don't know everything we see now nowadays online is is so amazing. You know the the difference between those just like Will said in motocross. You know the difference between the slow riders and the fast riders is just sort of blurred. And honestly, I'm, I'm okay with that because it's it means even more inspiration for all of us. Yeah, agreed, Spud. Yeah, you know I was just thinking of. Um... When I was just looking along the competition table, certainly the master's class at SMC and just being blown away by the overall standard that was on display. And not for one second did I think, oh, they all look boring. They all look the same. I was just like in awe of how good they all looked and instantly was thinking, I'd like to borrow that technique or I'd like to know how that was done. And or you, you saw techniques that, you know, you know the principles of how they've been achieved, but they've just been achieved so masterfully um, that they were inspiring for that. And and as an offshoot of that, like as Martin said, you know, you can have a, a an incline and then it plateaus. And during that plateau, it's almost I think maybe the analogy of like a rock climber. So the 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 lead guys are up on the plateau, and then he's helping everybody else up onto the plateau for the, then 
him to sort of go up the next incline. And it was it was noticeable at Telford as well, where it, I don't mean to sound horrible, but you can walk along the club stands and there's what you perceive as a club modeler build, you know, that there's there's not in much in the way of sort of shading or detail painting and stuff. And they they kind of look quite bland, if I'm honest. But the guy's enjoyed it. He's enjoyed what he's doing. That's the main thing. He's got a passion for the hobby. But I did notice this year particularly, looking around, that the overall standard of on the clubs had improved drastically. So, you know, the high end might may not be, you know, evolving as quick as, say, Mike would like. But the good thing is, like, everybody else is improving. So, you know, and, and I think if the more people you get up to a particular standard, once they've maybe mastered those a lot more the basic techniques or, or or even the advanced techniques, you may find someone else that, you know, not one of the perceived names, but someone that kind of comes out of the blue, comes up with something completely innovative. So, you know, I think, but the more people you get up to that standard, the more chance you've got someone, you know, taking the lead. Yeah, I I, I agree with both of what you're saying. And, and John, I, I really do agree that I've actually seen an uh, increase over the last couple of years of local shows here where you're seeing more people bring really good stuff. I mean, you're, that you, you didn't see 10, 15, 20 years ago. You did not see that, you know, you see, and uh, in my opinion, it it's, you know, I see the improvements, not the, what we were talking about. I, I don't see the one person coming out, stretching the, you know, making, you know, taking the envelope and ripping it off or whatever. I see micro, changes i see micro changes and dioramas vehicles more vehicles are on dioramas you see buildings now you see figures with more figures with their single models you're starting to see weathering techniques that you didn't see before i see a lot of people out here are doing their own welding martin <laughs> so they're doing they're 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 you know they're they're following their good uncle, so they're 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 doing all their own welding stuff on their um, things, uh, their models, and I see it actually crossing genres too. I see it. You're starting to see it in Gundam. I see it in cars. I see it in uh, aircraft over here. You're you're seeing that, uh, and I, I think the changes are not the big, you know the you know the big change of uh, modulation or something, but you're seeing micro changes and micro growth every day out in the hobby. And these micro growths are maybe because we're in a plateau. Don't know. But once we hit that and you're going to get that, you're going to get the change. You're going to get it no matter what. There's going to be a new Shep Payne out there. There's going to be a new Adam Wilde. There's going to be a new MIG. It's just, it's a matter of time. And I'm going to get off my rant there for a second. So I want to talk to you guys really quick about, you know, the balance between the artistic models and the realistic models. For the longest time, it was mostly, and this is just me talking, it was, uh, Everybody was doing realistic, not realistic, doing artistic models, you know, the modulations and stuff like that. And now I think you're seeing a lot of people shifting to the realistic models. So are you guys seeing that? Are you seeing the, the, the change? Are you seeing and what do you think about the artistic compared to realistic? Well, how do you feel about that? Go ahead, John. Um, I've, I've, I've actually I've, I enjoy both. I like to look at both and I'm inspired by both for myself. It's just trying to find the balance between the two. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously I did my time in the, in the military, so I've seen 
stuff that if you tried to replicate it as a model, people would just go, oh, that's a shame, yeah. bless him, you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, never mind. But, um, but sometimes it doesn't work on a model. So it's that I find that trying to get that balance between the two that people look at it and go, right, I know what he's doing there and it still looks nice and it at the end of the day you know it has its five minutes of fame whether it be in a magazine or or on you know on social media but the rest of the time it lives with me in a in a display cabinet and i want to be able to walk past it and go i'm actually quite happy with that rather than what did i do there you know and so yeah i, I definitely get influenced by both um but i do certainly think that people have gone they're, they're going more for the the realistic now and and they're using the artistic effects, but they're just toning them down. You know, I, I think people like Lester Plaskett, mm-hmm. when he does his mud effects on like his Abrams with the mind play, you know, it just looks as like Martin said with dust. You look at it and you think, if I touch that, my finger's going to get wet and I'm going to end up with mud on, you know, and it's yeah. just, you, it doesn't get any more realistic than that, you know. So, yeah, I'm definitely influenced by both. Mm-hmm. How about you, Martin? Uh it was actually interesting when you when you mentioned color modulation. It suddenly just popped in my mind that interesting thing about color modulation, especially in the 2000, 2010s and so, was that people were they were making their models artificial with color modulation, especially when it was when it was really heavy. And then they sort of started slapping all those realistic effects on it just to tone it down, you know. Yeah. And there was very little of that, like, let's just embrace completely that artificial look and let's just go for that. It was always, okay, I did it this way, now I need to tone it down, you know? So I think it would be actually interesting to see someone go back to it and completely embrace it, like make it totally over the top, you know, and how that would look like. And in the ter- in the constant battle between artistic and realistic, um, I'm completely on the more stylized side of things. And maybe it's, ju- it's just because it's easier for me. You know, <laughs> um, it's, a, it's sort of, um, I noticed that when I look at my models from two years ago or three years ago, what I'm doing now is completely different in, in terms of style. And so recently, as I finished my last work, again, it, it had all those... Uh, stylistic signatures all over it and uh, when i was scoping my next project i thought okay maybe i i can take this specific reference photo and try to replicate it as realistically as possible but as soon as i started working on it it was like yeah i'm still gonna try my best but (laughs) there will be something extra you know or something will be (laughs) a little bit different so i don't know because you know photorealistic style is hard yeah but then again, it comes down to what you're used to doing and how you're used to do to doing it. So, you know, even if you try to make something like really realistic, um, there might be some situations where you just give it a little bit of that stylistic touch, you know, and it'll still look just like the real thing. But as I like to say, slightly better, you know, slightly more, slightly more pleasing. so yeah i don't know but you know if you ask me i'm always stylistic all day (laughs) every day (laughs) yeah you know martin you you brought up a couple things that really got me thinking you know a lot of this i think comes down to motivation i mean if we're being honest here and you've 
you've said as much in, in some of your videos. You don't really like working from photographs because you want the you want the freedom to do what you do, you know? And and I think from a, a motivation standpoint, working from a photo is, is a challenge, but sometimes that might not be what people are looking for. I mean, what makes a model Spuds or Scott's or Martin's is is the finish, like the the appearance of the model. That's what makes it uniquely ours. And so having that, I guess, artistic or stylistic freedom to do something, I think is a big is a big motivating factor for me. Interesting to get your, you know, your thoughts on that. But but also this idea that you can engineer, you know, if you make a 35th scale tank from a photo, that you can engineer a perfect replica in scale of that, I think is is problematic at best. I think what you're looking for is something that tells your eye that that's what it is, but it's really, you have to, you have to be a bit of an artist to adjust the tones and the sheens to be in scale with the work that, that, you know, that that's in front of you. Um, Well, for me, um, I tend to not model a specific vehicle. I have occasionally, but inevitably as soon as i finish it and if you post the photos online then you get bombarded with all the views that you've never seen before and you realize that you've made three quarters of it wrong because they were the sides you couldn't see um so i tend to go for what would be the next vehicle in the platoon instead of the, the you know if it's a13 that's this famous photo i'll do like a14 so um you're keeping within that unit you have a similar layout with the stowage and the weathering and stuff like that, but it gives you a little bit more artistic license. I'll try to be as accurate as possible. You know, with I'll go on Google Earth now and I'll go to Street View and I'll walk along the street to to find the nearest patch of dirt. You know, and, and to make sure that the, the sort of dust tones or the mud tones I'm using on the model are representative of, of that actual area. You know, and uh, and so I'll kind of do daft things like that, but. I wouldn't. I think it's why I tend to avoid German vehicles because World War Two German vehicles because they are so well documented, you know. And if you you can't just do a generic Tiger or a generic, you know, because there's someone's going to know every chassis number and every unit and where they were, you know. So I tend to go for something kind of a bit like this. This the Sherman I've just done, you know, it's of a particular unit, a real unit. I looked at where it was you know, operated in, in Germany at that point in, you know, 1945. So I could get the kind of tones of the dust right. But then I had the, the artistic license by calling it Slugger and, you know, putting the baseball bat and ball on it just for my, for myself, really. Yeah, you see, see, this is the this is the biggest difference between us because John, he, he goes out and he searches for authentic dust zones. And I always choose dust tones based on the color of the model. Like if it's in a warm color, I'm yeah. going to use grayish colors. If it's a gray tank, I'm going to use warmer tones just so it can all play together. And I, I was just thinking uh, as you were speaking, John, like if I were ever to build a Panzer in German gray operating in Stalingrad, where it's full of, you know, rubble dust, which is gray, I, I would be completely lost. I would probably have to paint the rubble yellow so I can use warm dust tones on the tank because otherwise it would just look horrible if it were done by me. You know, I would be completely lost. So there you go. Realistic versus stylistic. <laughs> that's that's pretty awesome, man. That's I mean, but yeah, but yeah, there is no 
There is no wrong. I mean, you know, we talk about, I will go back to something that you guys talked about, Grant. I think you brought it up as well. Um, that as you, John, you said, as you walk through Telford, you're, you're noticing sort of, again, that rising tide lifting all boats that as far as weathering and things that, you know, as a whole in the hobby, that things are kind of getting better. Um, at least the things you see in the show. And I've seen the same things you have judged a lot of shows and particularly like a, a good example is with aircraft and armor about 10 years ago, everything was really dark because everybody started using washes, which are great, but they didn't build that into the planning of their builds at first. And I'm generalizing. And so you would have um, that, you know, to me, a tone of olive drab with a wash over it, it would be very, very dark. And now um, as you go through shows, you're seeing modelers, to, you know, across the spectrum, taking that more into account and, um, you know, probably again, watching guys like you um, do what you're doing and everything. And now you're seeing that come back around. And so I've noticed that that a lot. I think as far as the presentation of the models as well, um, I think that's really changing. I think in the last three or four years, especially I see more and more we're going away from that plane playing on a piece of paper or a tank on a plank is uh, what we <laughs> armor guys call them. Right. But I think the presentation of the pieces has become, it certainly has become more and more important to me, but how do you guys see the, the presentation of the models? You see that evolving at all? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, just even a couple of the guys from, from the four corners club, obviously Kev Smith and, and Dan, who's, who's been on the podcast. Um, they incorporate the the base becomes part of the overall scene with the fact they'll they'll have like rivets down the side of the base and it'll be weathered as if it was part of a a vehicle. Um, Dan's done it with a, a British World War One Mark IV tank that's knocked out as it's about to sort of cross a trench, and you know the, just the work that's gone into the edges of the base is a work of art on its own. Uh, and Kev, Kev Smith's been doing it for a really long time as well. So yeah, it, it does make it, it, it really finishes the story, you know, and, and completes the story. Well, I'm, I'm guilty of just at the moment, certainly with the one sixteenth scale, there's just on a black picture frame with some black cards, you know, just for pure convenience. And, and by the time I've finished the 16th build, I'm kind of burnt out anyway. <laughs> it's a tank on a really big plane. Big, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Martin, what do you think about that? Uh, Scott, you actually reminded me of something pretty interesting when you talked about those washes and models being too dark. Um, John, I think you were active on the, those old MIG Productions forums, right? I was, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I, I just remembered there was one modeler. I think he was from Poland, but I don't remember his name. What he used to do, he would paint the model. This was in the color modulation era. So he would make, make the model really over modulated, like the highlights were pretty much white. And then he would slap undiluted dark oil paint completely all over it. It was like, it was completely covered and he would wipe it away with wipes and, you know, cotton buds and stuff. And yeah, it was, it was like, it was, there was a lot of contrast. Totally dark, almost black. Every corner was almost completely black, and the highlights were almost white. And he always chose very obscure vehicles, like you know, low quality, short run resin kits, and so on. And but now that I think uh, think of it, it was really interesting and unique. You know, uh, maybe that was a way of 
progress in one direction, you know, but it was just sort of snuffed out by history. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's it's all these all those things like these oddities that can lead somewhere you know someone can push it forward like this is my this is my thing i'm going to do it this way some people might borrow from it you know you take one extreme someone is doing something really extreme you take small snippets of it and what was the what was the actual question uh presentation yeah so yeah i kind of i kind of see it because as i said off the podcast i'm not very active on social media anymore but I see it on modeling forums and when people occasionally shoot me a message, like I see aircraft modelers who are really like into, you know, riveting, rescribing the, the panels and everything, buying those resin aftermarket sets. They're actually trying to make nice scenic bases for their airplanes, you know, like most of the time what, what I'm used to seeing here is an airplane on a runway. So you have plain, flat slabs of supposedly concrete with a few stains of oil on there but that's pretty much it now i start to see you know like actual actually properly applied static grass and some shrubberies on the side it's actually painted it's not raw unpainted you know concrete it has cracks in it it's slightly shaded you know so it fits in with the airplane which also has some post shading on it so yeah i think the overall presentation but again, it's a it's a slow incline. It's not like rapid, and that's totally fine. And actually, actually, that's that's something very nice about it that it's it's subtle. You know, it takes a little bit of time. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, I just I I know um, I did a little FJ for AK. We did a, a group build. Martin, you've done um, a, a one of those as well. Really beautiful. But um, I got done with it, and I just you know, as a modeler, I mean, it was fine. But I yeah, I just yeah, I'm not really feeling this. I just took a little piece of foam and made a base with balsa wood surrounds and and threw some scenery on it. I mean, nothing like you guys would would be able to do. But for me, it really changed um, how I felt about the piece overall. You know, just I ended up liking it a a lot more, I guess, for lack of a more eloquent way to say that. But I I really I, I see that sort of happening across across the hobby as a whole and uh, getting uh, more and more done so uh, i guess spud uh got to work on some 1 16th scale bases and <laughs> figures and stuff so now i mean the figures you did on on your easy eight oh my god yeah, that's something you two have in common right grant so you know when martin oh i've never done a figure before so i'll do a couple figures and then you're just watching the video and say what's but i don't really do good figures but i'm just gonna whip out a couple here really quick yeah I hate oh. you're just like <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I, hate, I, hate, I hate them both. I mean, I've been working on figures for years now, and I like you guys. Oh yeah, this is my second figure, and I'm like, God dang it! <laughs> so, no, and I, I that's the thing too is I think you, you're you're kind of I think that's a change that we're seeing is the the uh, uh, I call it a micro made change that I guess like I said earlier is that you know those the figures are coming into play, diorama bases are coming into play. Um, I remember that gentleman on on Meg's forum from Poland. Um, I, I remember that guy very well. There's, there's some things out there and I do a lot of Warhammer gaming stuff and you're seeing stuff. I, I gather stuff for that, for my, my armor modeling builds and stuff like that. You're seeing the people do the same thing with, they call it the grim dark method where they'll paint a figure beautiful and then they'll just dump on MIG grime and then they'll wipe it off. And it's, it, it's a, it's a style that people are trying it's working, you know, but I, I want to get your guys' opinion on something. I think another thing the hobby is doing really well now is grabbing from other 
other stuff, uh, other genres, let's say railroad modelers, um, figure painters, uh, sci-fi guys, uh, just artists alone. Do you guys, uh, we see a lot of that. Do, do you think that's, do you, you watch other videos on YouTube besides, you know, modeling where you're, you're learning ideas like that? Or are you trying to, you know, you know, do that kind of work? We all know that the, you know, if you want to make scenery really well, you look at some of the railroad modelers out there that, that, that know how to do that kind of stuff. Um, how about you guys? Do you, do you reach out like that? Well, for me, it was kind of, you know, I, I used to sort of be on YouTube every day mm-hmm. and, uh, I was at first I was sort of enclosed in my own bubble and but I had the luxury of reading people's comments suggesting other things or other people to watch and at first I was like yeah but you know that wouldn't really work because he's in a railroad modeler and it's something completely different and then I just I would just play a video from Luke Towen just as a sort of visual ASMR you know just to wind down and see him build something and then I would, you know, grab some ideas from that, like like I said before the podcast about uh, soaking the ground with alcohol first and then dripping PVA glue because it helps with the flow. So those small snippets, but, you know, you can, for example, take basics from, again, railroad, railroad modelers about building trees, but again, in one third fifth scale, mm-hmm. those techniques wouldn't really work. But you can grab the basics or something that really catches your attention. Like, okay, I can build up upon this, you know, expand it further for my own needs, for my own scale. So that can help. And yeah, it's just all those different genres. Like uh, when I tried painting my first figure, I wouldn't even imagine how figure painting would influence my own painting style with model, with tanks, dioramas and buildings. Like I employ some of those methods everywhere everything with everything i do so yeah i i think branching out especially when you feel like when you're when you're picking up a new model and the only thing that excites you is just that it's a new model and not that oh i'm finally gonna try this or i'm finally gonna make this type of finish then i think it's it might be actually beneficial and improve enhance your fun factor if you try to branch out you know, try to implement something new, try to learn some new trick, com- something completely different that you can implement. And you would be surprised how it would influence your your work from there onward. Yep. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Martin. Um, I was just thinking of some of my own experiences, especially when I used to edit uh, Model Military Magazine. You know, we try to have like a nice spread of articles, you know, something small scale, something German, something modern, a full-size reference article and a weathering article. And I remember a guy saying, I would love you to do a weathering article on on mud on a tiger tank, say. And I said, oh, actually, two issues ago, we just did a weathering on mud, but it was on a Sherman tank. And the guy said, yeah, I didn't bother reading that because it was on a Sherman tank. And it was like, but it's mud. It's all the same, you know, but, yeah. but that's how, how kind of boresighted these people can be. And, you know, so he wouldn't read an article just because it was on a green tank and he only built German stuff. So it's really difficult to get sometimes people to say, look, you know, if you're struggling with figure painting, for example, or painting stowage, watch a figure painting video. You know, they'll explain all the highlights, the shadows, the shading. And that will work for soft stowage on, you know, on the back of a vehicle, for instance. Um, you know, I've watched videos on painting Warhammer and stuff like that. And and just the way the 
they apply the paints uh, and draw the brush so that the, the most opaque part of the paint is at the end of the stroke, where I thought exactly. that was yeah. the opposite way around. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. And it was just such an eye-opener. And if it hadn't been for looking at those other genres, I would have been no, I would never have known, you know, so I'm a real advocate of, of just checking other videos, checking other genres, and you'd be amazed what you can pick up from those. That's a, that's a really good point, Spud. You know, last year and this year, I went to a show here in the U.S. called MMSI, and it's it's always been kind of primarily a figure uh, painting and, and vignette and diorama kind of show. There's more and more um, sort of traditional ordinance is what they call it, planes and tanks. A couple of the things I saw there that really I thought, man, what would it be like to make a vignette? The first thing was there are some figure painters that will paint um, figures or busts in grayscale. So like you're watching a, a black and white movie, right? Only that's the way they painted it. And then the other thing is from the uh, on the fantasy side, um, the Gunpla um, builders, a lot of the really high end guys there, they're painting very stylized finishes, almost like you're looking at a, a at your figure, your robot or whatever, your big suit, whatever those are um, in a comic book. So like the they're actually painting on like um ink ink and ink strokes and brush strokes and yeah. and things like that and and uh, I thought it'd be really really cool to see you know an armor armor person maybe take one of those very very stylistic approaches and and use it on uh, a vignette or just maybe just an armor piece. I'm I'm waiting for volunteers, Grant. I don't. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't no, think no, no, I'm no. Getting sorry. That. Sorry, you can go ahead and cut that out. <laughs> so um, I, I I agree. I, I the the things some of the things that you're seeing now, and I was at MMSI this year, uh, which was a great show, uh, by the way. Um, it was you're you're seeing more of that, uh, reaching for better, and that's another show that here in the states that you walk in there and you're like the craftsmanship of what you see is phenomenal. I mean, you guys, you have guys like John Rosengrant, Mike Blank uh, from England, stuff like that. And, you know, these guys are world, you know, very well known. And they're, they're, you know, one of the great conversations I heard there was that there was some figure painters talking about the definition of light, how light hits a subject, how light hits a figure from a direction. And they were talking about, they would wish they would see somebody do like a early morning or late or the sun going down where a tank was coming up a hill and it was the, the, the light was focused on the front of it and there was casting the shadows, you know, and I don't think you would have heard that conversation 10 years ago because of there wasn't the, the, the intermingling of the, the, the of the mind. Yeah. The, the genres. Yeah. But uh, it was, uh, you, you don't see that anymore. And I think, I think a lot of it is because of guys like you, John and Martin, that you're, you you're, you're, you're pushing people to see things differently, which we don't, we, we haven't seen in a little while and in a, in a, well, a long while, in my opinion, but I think more people in different genres are looking at your stuff than people from your genre are looking at other stuff, if that makes sense. So I think we're having more of a crossover from other people coming in than other people going out is what I'm yeah. trying to say. Martin, and, uh, so, sorry, Grant, Martin, I've no. always kind of wondered, wondered this, I mean, certainly you have to have conversations with people that are Patreons that aren't armor builders. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. I don't know if there's any way to tell, but I'd be curious to see how many people that aren't armor modelers that maybe have never built a tank, but that watch all your videos. Um, I personally know about 
a few that just sent me a message like, hey, I'm not even a modeler at all. That is like looking at your stuff and I want to support you. And yeah, then there are, of course, aircraft modelers, a lot of figure painters, and especially the Warhammer crowd, who are just there to pick up on the techniques and maybe ask questions when they have problems. And many times when I see people that they they send me a message like, I'm going to try my first armor model or something, I tell them, awesome. And if you like it, do what you want to do with the first one. But then if you really like it and you want to stick to it or maybe... Uh, included with your other models try putting some of that some of that background of yours into it you know and see where that goes yeah that's a great a great point Uh, you know we were kind of touching on that before that but if you're a figure painter or warhammer painter bring those same same techniques to the tank right or the vehicle that you're doing exactly yeah that's a, that's a great idea what about you john i mean do you have somebody that'll come by telford or smc and say, this is really great. I've never done this, but I, I just really like it. Yeah. Um, uh, actually, at, at, at Telford, there's uh, uh, John Bryan, who's, who's been on the, the show. Yeah, um, John's we, a good we had, guy. We had, we had quite a long conversation. And, you know, he's said you know, he's an incredible aircraft modeler. Um, but we spent quite a lot of time just talking about the Sherman. And I was going through techniques. And he's saying, basically, he was looking at what he could incorporate maybe on on the aircraft project and which which of these sort of techniques were transferable and just how I went about some of those techniques because they are quite I guess alien to a, to an aircraft modeler so yeah it was it was it was nice when you get a, a broad spectrum of people come up and kind of appreciate the work for for what it is or at least they understand what you're trying to achieve with the model when they recognize different techniques and different effects and and understand them and if they if a layman understands what you've tried to do then i feel like i've achieved the goal you've got it right if you know if yeah. if a, a modeler understands it it's because we're all kind of on singing off the same song sheet but when someone from the general public go oh i recognize oh, I, I like that i like how you've done this and i understand it and I, I think it you know the models work then yeah i think we use the word weathering at least here in the states i don't want to <laughs> speak for anybody else but i think in other places i think they're a little bit more precise maybe i think they talk about you know patina and, and weathering sort of only means you know dust and mud and rain right whereas um things like fuel stains or scuff marks in the paint are are something completely different that kind of goes back to maybe looking at armor models as as uh, through the through the lens of a figure painter or through the lens of somebody that uh, maybe an aircraft modeler that, you know, um, would bring a different approach to it. I think uh, I can see that. Building on that, Martin, inspiration, we kind of talked about inspiration outside of the armor community. You brought up Luke Toen, who's, I watch his videos a lot. I'm also a big fan. I don't know if you're familiar with Chuck Doan. He he does kind of armor adjacent, or I mean, excuse me, railroad adjacent models, and he'll hyper realistic models. Yes, hyper yeah. just really amazing stuff. Um, you know, things like that. But but what about within the armor community? You've got to see, you know, some things inside of the community that inspire you. So who do you look towards? Who who kind of makes your eyes get a little bit bigger when you are really engaging um, with other models online in whatever format that is? Well, this is a very, 
That's that was a low blow from you, Scott. Because <laughs> ouch, oh, sorry. <laughs> because it, because it, because if I want to be completely honest, which I think I can without sounding really ba- bad or anything, but I I kind of I don't really follow that many people anymore. Like 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 I said before the podcast, I uninstalled all my social media because it was really affecting me mentally. And it was a it was a huge help. It, it really did made a difference. So I kind of lost touch. But you know, maybe maybe that's the reason why I talk about branching out to other genres and mm-hmm. looking up to other people. But really, my biggest sources of inspiration over the past couple of years were people. Okay, they might be doing armor because they are making historical you know armor dioramas. But it was not really the armor part. It was either the terrain, the scenery, the buildings. You know, uh, like I said, uh, some sometime in the past on this podcast, Volker Bembenek, modeler yeah, from Volker. Germany. Yeah, yeah, his amazing, beautiful, highly stylized dioramas. It's just it, it, sometimes I open my folder with pictures I downloaded from his Facebook profile. You know, and I just look at them and just admire them you know and feel good like i can actually observe this now recently i bought a book from a french modeler emmanuel noirier who's making these 3d pictures of uh, deteriorated buildings you know he just makes a flat facade with some relief and everything but it's just it's just one side and he puts them into deep uh, picture frames and that's something that really inspired me recently because I want to improve my building painting techniques because I feel like I sort of lack, you know, muscle memory there. So, yeah, I guess I guess it's that. Like, really, I'm sort of just branching out nowadays. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I mean, we should have known that from all the bricks that you talked about earlier. <laughs> Spud, what about, what about you? Anybody... Anybody inside of that the armor community, or maybe somebody adjacent to it, that really kind of wows you? Um, I, I have to say, um, a lot of the guys at the you know the Four Corners Club, I'm so blessed with the quality you know the work. The, the guys are just so talented, you know, and and because we have our own group chat and we're constantly sharing pictures of what we're working on, it's just so much inspiration. Um, you know, outside of that. When I first sort of started, it was, you know, the Valinden, Shep Payne, sort of them, the MIG came along, Tony Greenland, you know, that that was, he was very influential back in the early days of sort of Euro military. And yeah, just so many, you know, like things like, um, like Roger Herkman's, his, his work, it's, it's that incredibly gritty realism, you know, that I absolutely love that. Leicester's the same, Leicester Plaskett's the same, that they've got a very similar style, which I really like. But I've also, you know, been hugely influenced by people like Adam. And, you know, the, I was really hooked on the modulation to start with. Um, and then, as Martin said, you know, you try to tone it down a little bit to to suit my own eye, because we've all got a different eye for what we like and what we perceive as what looks good to us. So, uh so yeah, you know the list is endless, and it could be you know even people that you know don't actually sort of know the person's name, but I've just seen their work on 
social media and and it done exactly what Martin's done and you end up screenshotting these pictures and using them as as reference later later on you know um so yeah it's too many to mention I'm afraid yeah it's you guys have you guys have brought up you guys brought up some really good names and stuff like that and you know it's 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 funny when you hear things like that for me it is because <laughs> you know I look up to both you guys you guys are doing wonderful stuff but I want to talk about real quick is I want to get off the I don't want to put anybody in any more spots like Scott likes to do who's your oh, favorite geez. Come on, man. <laughs> let's talk about uh the storytelling you know and we are seeing that more in 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 our models um you know and storytelling could be anything from martin your 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 signs that you put on a, a diorama or you know spud your baseball and your baseball mitt in the back of your sherman are you guys going in with these ideas you know i guess the question is is that do you have these ideas of your storytelling worked out before you go or is this is this just something that just kind of flows with the system or the flows with your build is that how is that how you do that so uh, i'll start with uh, martin how do you feel about that um, um, I, I said it a couple of times in my videos, um, I'm always limited by the selection of figures on the market. And whenever I start a project, I like, for example, I pick up a specific model. Let's take, for example, that Valentine that I did. I knew like, okay, now I'm going to build this Valentine. It's going to be land lease Soviet vehicle. And I'm going to look for some figures for it. So I, at first I, I found a few sitting tankers that would go into the hatch. So I chose the one from Alpine in the blue overall. And then I was thinking, okay, but let's make it a diorama because one figure sitting in the, in the hatch isn't really a diorama. So let's see what's, what else is out there. And so I was looking through some sets like, yeah, this sounds pretty good. Then I found those uh, soldiers, you know, with a machine gun. Like, okay, they are designed for a KV-2 because one of them has that raised leg. And maybe I can I can sort of fit them on, on the tank and we'll see how, how it will go. So, and all of a sudden, yeah, I just, you know, I was positioning them around the tank. Like, yeah, this is a pretty good composition. I looked at it from afar. Yeah, it actually makes sense. You know, the, the one soldier is standing on the tank. He's grabbing the machine gun. The other guy is giving it to the machine gun to him. The tanker is just sitting there look, looking at them. And that's pretty much it. Um, people always talk about storytelling in models and also obviously in dioramas. And honestly, I'm, I'm terrible at storytelling because I'm just call it lazy because I want to buy something and assemble it. And paint it, you know, as far as figures go. So, you know, in in this regard, my work is very simple and straightforward. And on the other hand, when I when I listen to podcasts and people always talk about storytelling on with weathering or like on models, and yeah, there's a lot of truth behind that. But sometimes, just sometimes, I feel like people are looking way too much into it. Like they consider this little stain a great piece of storytelling, while in re reality, it might be just, nah, I just looked there. Uh, it doesn't look <laughs> good there, you know. It was missing something, so I put it there. You know? Yeah. I, I would like to rebut the, the gentleman from Slovakia. Um, <laughs> first of all, um, hashtag faults, Martin. Um, you're really good at storytelling. And and what I mean by that is, okay, maybe there may not be some big elaborate, well, this is Carl and, you know, he went and did that. But but um, what I love about your pieces are, um, and you, you've mentioned this before, 
I think, in our podcast, but you really present figures that are at peace. They're at moments of peace. And, you know, I think so many armor dioramas have these, in most cases, poorly executed um, moments of, of terror and other things. I don't mean to denigrate that as a, as a, as a muse, um, but in general, I think figures bring humanity to our models and your figures really make me feel a sense of, of that, of, of peace and ease. And I, I, I think that takes work and that takes talent and, that's my opinion and I'm not changing it. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, and then, thank you. <laughs> and and then, and then the other part of it is is the way that you blend your your elements together. And so you I, I love watching something come together the way that you put your videos together where um like you've said I don't think you always know exactly where it's going to go and then it goes. And um I really I really like the way that your structures and your figures and everything kind of tend to really become cohesive. And and again, that's, to me, that storytelling, you've got a cohesive theme, everything looks like it should. And it, it has that, that element, that, that humanity, but also the serenity to it. So I'm going to be quiet now and let Spud <laughs> talk. But anyway, I needed to say that. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Spud, what do you think? Um, yeah, I, I wish I could tell the stories with a lot more of my models. Um, I tend to get to the point because I've always had a bit of a mental, ironically, um, taking a step back when I first edited the model military. And before that, I would, I did quite a few articles for the French magazine Steelmasters. Mm. And I was always putting figures with dioramas and, and they were mainly base coated in sort of acrylics or enamels and then finished with oils. And I was kind of quite happy with them and I kind of fairly standard sort of uh, process towards finishing them. And then I got to a point where I think I saw so many other modelers' figures just were so much better than anything I could produce. So I just stopped adding figures because I just couldn't get there. So I've got an awful lot of models that have got open hatches with the one day I'm going to do a figure or I'm going to do figures to go in there. Before the, the 16th scale Sherman, previously to that, it had been uh, Vietnam uh, Sheridan that I did two uh, crew figures from Bravo 6. And the idea that was supposed to be in a diorama, but the next shiny new model came along. So I kind of shelved that and, you know, was easily distracted by the, the new, new plastic that turned up. But I tend to try and incorporate a bit of a story, um, sometimes they're not fully finished, where uh, I did a Challenger 2 that was supposed to be on the test range and there's a tin of WD-40 and a blue roll on the, the front fender where they've been you know, cleaning the, the, the machine guns and stuff like that and the, the mechanics been there. With the, the Sherman, the big Sherman, that was, uh, it, was a, 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 it wasn't a bright light bulb moment but as I was kind of watching things like Band of Brothers, Fury, just to try and get some inspiration for, you know, just the overall look of the vehicle and the feel, it was the very end episode of Band of Brothers where they're playing baseball. And mm. then thought, you know, I knew that they were issued to the troops of baseball and a bat and a glove. So I thought that would be quite cool to do. And then watching Saving Private Ryan, where one of the characters has got Brooklyn on the back of his jacket then i thought 
wouldn't it be cool to have a loader or the, one of the crew members to have like New York Yankees on the back of his jacket? And so that's where the baseball bat and glove came mm. from and bucket with the balls. But then that put the pressure on me that I needed to now add some figures, <laughs> um, which were graciously sent to me by Roberto Real from Royal Model. And, you know, they're obviously not cheap, these figures. So I really wanted to do the best job I could with them. And they ended up being stripped in VMS clean slate three times, you know. And and again, I as I said earlier, I literally have Martin's video on pause and uh, uh, Calvin Tan's videos on on pause or on YouTube to sort of go right. I'm getting there. I've got this. I've got this. And then I'd go to the next next step and go, what went wrong? So they'd go back in the strip. So anyway, it was kind of eleventh um, hour. I was happy with the way they looked and they completed the story. So the tank's called Slugger, obviously the reference to the baseball. But I also thought because it's an up-armoured Sherman, it would be it was used to slug it out with the German armour at the head of a column. So it sort of tied it all in, in in my mind. And if anybody else got the reference, great. But if not, I was happy with it. <laughs> Yeah, I love the I love the baseball implements, you know, and uh, as an as an American, especially, you know, the the fact that a, a gentleman from the UK would put that in it just it, to me, it really spoke to me. It really, uh, it really did. Well, um, I kind of wanted to talk to you guys maybe about a, a couple of specific things that you do, and then um, we want to have time for you guys to maybe uh, ask each other a couple of questions or whatever you'd like to talk about. But, um, but I want to start with you and kind of the way that you, that you approach earth elements, specifically dust and also mud, especially on the larger vehicles where you're really bringing that third dimension to it. You're really bringing, um, like the depth of the dust or the clumpiness of the mud and what you're doing there. Um, you know, what's inspiring you to do that? Cause I think it's, I mean, I think you're really excelling at that and it's certainly inspirational for me. Thank you. Um, I guess a lot of it is, you know, possibly said before from, you know, I grew up racing motocross. So I've spent many, many hours pressure washing motocross bikes and, you know, seen caked on dry mud with all the grass that's, bound into it and obviously all the wet sloppy mud so i've had you know intimate kind of knowledge of the stuff and i was desperate to try and convey that in the models and certainly with 16th scale i feel it's as much about the textures as the colors because you know in 35th scale you can just airbrush some dust on because in that scale you wouldn't feel it but in the say 16th scale you should be able to f- almost feel that dust. Um, so that's re- really where it's come from. And, and with the advent of so many amazing products now that you can get where you've got, you know, your muds in a tub and these things, so you can get consistent results with it. And I've just found that's made it so much easier to do. You know, for a long time, I always knew what I wanted to create, but the products weren't necessarily available for you to make it easier to, you know, and more readily accessible. So uh, I think that's that's been a game changer for me is sort of, you know, the, the companies like AK and, and Mig and Vallejo that have started to produce all these texture products that have just made my life so much easier. I, I think I agree with that a little bit, but like I said, on your, on your dust, you know, it, it's that fine line of 
putting too much dust on or not enough dust. But I, I just think that you, you know, Martin, I think talked about a little bit earlier in your centurion, your Vietnam centurion, just you straddle that line and really, really um, have that down well. Thank you. Yes. Um, again, it's that fine line between the artistic and the realistic, you know, because I, I still want the model to look nice to look at, but I still want to convey the environment that it's operated in. Um, and yeah, it's just, I've been fortunate to just get the balance right with it. But ironically, it was to say, I, Martin picked up on this. Um, where I mentioned, you know, I'll go on Google Earth and look at the colors of the soil in that area. But, but I'm a great advocate of if I'm doing a, a like a dark green vehicle, I wouldn't want to put dark mud on there, wet mud, because they just all blur into one mess. So I tend to go for, if it's like an olive drab vehicle, I'll go for a lighter dried mud or dust tones, where if I was doing, say, uh, a German sand vehicle, that would tend to have the darker earth and mud tones because you get the nice contrast and they they complement because, you know, I think if you took a black and white photo, you wouldn't be able to tell, you know, if it was all the same tone, it just, just look kind of look really strange. So, so I'm, I, I do go down that route that Martin does where I make, I want to make sure the colors and the tones complement and contrast at the same time. Yeah. I mean that, that makes a lot of sense now that uh, you guys have pointed it out. But um, I mean, that's fantastic. Well, Martin, I'm going to, I want to ask you about, um, and I know it's not your favorite thing to do, but your use of water, you know, just, it's just so good. Uh, that, that wrecked uh, Mark four that you cut in half, <laughs> which made us all cry a little inside, but it, it was worth it in the end. Um, but you know, um, a lot of your, a lot of your dioramas, vignettes have incorporated that water um, and, and everything just seems natural, you know, having a the little things like having a puddle next to a deeper, you know, a deeper um, pool of water, you know, just little things like that. So, you know, where does that come from? I guess it's just about overcoming an old fear of mine because I was always afraid to experiment with with epoxy resin and water. Like that was always something that I could only admire, but I would never find the guts to actually try it. And when I finally did with the Mark IV, I realized that, oh, it's not that hard, actually, you know? So then again, it, it opened a new door for me, you know, and everyone who tries it will probably feel the same way. Like, okay, I already know how to do it and I can take any, any scenery and just spice it up with a little bit of water. No, because it's a completely different texture. It has, you know, that shiny quality to it, and it's just cool. You know, you can you can fill an empty corner of a vignette with a tree stump or some tall grass, or you can put a creek in there. You know, and it's some suddenly it has. I don't know. In my eyes, it it, it has more value suddenly because you know other te- technologies went into that. You know. A completely different skill set required to to pull that off, but then again, every time I do water, it's just it's really basic, you know, like stuff, things like splashing water. I haven't tried that that yet. I mean, I knew a few methods, but just in theory, like I have a general idea on how to do it, but I just didn't find the courage because 
again, it's what I said about resin. Resin is unforgiving, man. Like you make a mistake, there's no coming back. You can just wipe it off or repaint it. You know, it's going to leave something there. It's immediately it seeps into something and you'll see it, that it was there. And it happened to me a few times and I sort of managed to cover it up. But yeah, I don't know. You know, sometimes you overcome, you step out of your comfort zone and the, you you take two steps out of your comfort zone and you're just fine staying there. You know, there's no need to take further steps. <laughs> John, for, for the dust and Martin on the water, did you guys, I probably should know the answer to this, but did you guys use a mule before you put it on a piece or did you just... Go forward on on your model. Martin, I'll start with you. I mean, did you just start pouring resin on your model or did you have a some poor little mule that gave its life to prove the concept? Uh, the only mule I had with the Mark IV, uh, it wasn't the mule. I just tested different colors for the actual tint of the water. Okay. I tried them aside, but I didn't even mix the resin. I just... Uh, you know, took a little drop of resin and tried mixing it with different types of paints, enamels, you know, water-based acrylics, Tamiya paints, figure out what works, what doesn't, and then what specific tone would look the best. That was pretty much it. My my whole my whole aim with that diorama was that if I'm going if I'm going to fail, I want everyone to see it. <laughs> it's gonna be epic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. Spud, what about you with the dust? I mean, did you just start throwing it on the model, or did you have a did you have a victim to kind of test different different things on? No, I, I'm a nightmare for just going straight into the model with it. I've I can't say I've ever had a, a, a mule model. I tend to use the base of the, the bottom of the model will probably be where, where I'll do some experimenting because you know, obviously, touching on the the subject, you know, I'm not one of those that weathers and paints at the bottom of the model apart from where I use it to practice and to to also see what the tones are going to look like. So, you know, once I've got the the actual colour of the vehicle on the bottom and then I'll just try the dust tone and if I think that's in the ballpark, um, then I'll just go for it from there, you know. And, and I always think that if I'm adding the dust tone, the worst that can happen is I'm just going to have to just reapply the base coat so I tend to, when I'm adding the effects, I know that at each stage, if I get it wrong, I've only got to go back one stage. I haven't got to go right back to the very beginning. So it probably, it may seem like I'm a, a bit cowboyish with it, but, you know, I think because I've done it on quite a few models now uh, that I've, I'm quite confident with the results that I'm hoping to achieve. So I can, you know, play a little bit safe but um kind of be convinced that it'll be okay in the end <laughs> well if if you're cowboyish with with your dusts um i think we're all looking over there at the uh, kovach kid there with the, the resin man <laughs> talking about being a cowboy holy cow no that's great um okay uh final question then uh think of some questions for each other i'm gonna start with uh with martin what is the single hardest part uh, of of doing a diorama it could be wet effects it could be the water we're talking about it could be the face on a figure what is the hardest part for martin in uh, in your projects i can't really think about the hardest like 
the, the amount of workload or difficulty, but I can tell you the most annoying parts. Okay. <laughs> that would not be yeah. sufficient. Yeah. Uh, the, applying the veneer on the sides. Yeah. Then uh, painting the groundwork with enamels. It's just a lot of back and forth and I just hate it. Applying the static grass mainly because it's a lot of mess and it's really hard to film it. Like put the camera angle underneath the static grass applicator. It's just, yeah, just so annoying. And what then? Um, Most fun, definitely airbrushing grass. And I don't know, sort of hardest, but also not is the initial planning and composition because... Okay, nowadays I don't feel so pushed by time anymore since I don't upload weekly, but a lot of that planning just always feels to me like I'm just sitting there wasting time, you know, not doing anything. But just because you're not physically doing something doesn't mean you're, you know, doing nothing. You know, it's all happening in your mind. You're experimenting with different uh, settings. So yeah, you're creating, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, as we probably all experienced, a little bit of planning beforehand goes a long way because you can build a beautiful, technically beautiful diorama, but if it's composed poorly, it's just, it's, the, it's probably not going to be your favorite piece, you know? So yeah, I'd say those. Um, oh, and painting wood if the wood grain texture sucks. So <laughs> when you, when you have, when you, when you have laser cut, pieces made from chipboard which is impossible to texture yeah and it has this weird sort of like 3d printed look to it all, all these tiny steps from the laser that's not fun at all to paint <laughs> <laughs> all right spud same question what do you what do you dislike the most maybe maybe not the uh, um you know the hardest or whatever but what do you dislike the most and what do you like the most I dislike the most has definitely has to be individual track links. Oh. And coincidentally, the, the M48 that I've been working on at the moment, I'd say that's been a shelf queen for a good couple of years. And um, I don't like the AFE club individual track links. And obviously TACOM have just had recently released a set. So I bought them and there's six parts to each track link. And, uh, and I'm actually built, I was building them right up until we've started this podcast. Um, I think I, I've been putting them off to the point where I wanted to see how the dust was going to come out <laughs> on this M48 before I committed to building these tracks. So I'm at a point where I'm quite, I'm happy with the way the dust is coming out. Um, so I'm like, okay, I'll commit to building the tracks. But yeah, they're definitely the, for me, the worst part. And also, I think really it's the figure painting. I know I seem to have, fluked the crew figures for the for the the uh, Sherman but I annoy myself because I should really if I've got some spare time start painting a figure but I won't I'll I'll end up watching stuff on YouTube and stuff and <laughs> you know I really should discipline myself and go right this time would be far more beneficial if you actually painted a figure you're never going to improve unless you practice true yeah all right well, Spud, what's uh, at least one, maybe maybe do more, but uh, what's a question you'd like to ask Martin, you know, if he could, if you could pick his brain, what would you like to know about his work? Oh, oh wow. Um, do you know, the, uh, it's slightly off topic, but the thing, of, it wasn't so much a question, but I was really pleased when 
Martin announced that he was going to stop the Friday uploads. Yes. Purely yes. because I know exactly what the burnout's like. When I was editing the magazine, when it's, you know, your full-time job, then in the evenings you're building models, you go to model shows the weekend to pre- represent the, the publication, and you lose a lot of the enthusiasm. And um, I'm really struggling to think of a, a question. You know, there's so many things I could ask about his modelling, but the great thing is he, he posts it all up on YouTube. So, you know, and it doesn't it doesn't leave anything out where, you know, back in the days of magazines, often you'd see people were writing an article and then the bit you wanted to know about the most, they just never mentioned. It was that knowledge is power, you know, and they didn't want you to know this little technique that would elevate your models. So, yeah, sorry if I'm sounding like I'm sort of avoiding the question, but I'm I'm really struggling to to ask. Up up until a year ago, my question was always, and I did ask him this, um, why, why are you being a barbarian with those scissors to pull those parts off the sprue? Please stop. (laughs) So that would have been, that would have been my number one question. Actually, that does, it does make me, when I'm watching him cut the edges of that, the wood, the wood veneer from the edge mm-hmm. of the diorama, I'm kind of like, I keep glancing over at the first aid kit, you know, I'm just, I'm, <laughs> it just really unnerves me watching him, watching, I'm like, you know, I know we all cut plastic, you know, all day, every day, and, you know, we're in close, close proximity to scoble blades, but when you're watching it, I'm like, I can't breathe until that scene's finished. <laughs> I've actually cut myself really badly on the last day. Oh, yeah. Can yeah. I just tell you one really silly little story? When I was in the Air Force and I was based at a, a, a camp in London, um, we were really, really quiet. And I'd taken in a Valinden 116th scale tiger, the horrendous oh. resin thing to work, it, work on. And I was cleaning the resin and I managed to cut across the top of my thumb with a sculpture blade. So I went across to the medical center, literally across the road. So they put a couple of stitches in and bandaged me all up. And they said, Oh, how did you do this? So I had to lie to them and tell them (laughs) I was cutting the double-sided tape for putting the cheek pad on the rifles. And uh, so before my thumb had completely healed, I started cleaning up more of the road wheels and cut myself in exactly the same place <laughs> and opened up the stitches and then had to go back over to the medical center. And they were like, what have you done now? And I said, oh, exactly the same thing. <laughs> so they phoned my boss and said, don't let him work on the guns anymore. So, <laughs> so yeah, we've all been guilty of it. <clears throat> oh, man, that's awesome. Uh, Martin, what about you? Do you have a que- any questions for Spud? Uh, I actually have two. I just had one, but I'd like to catch up on something that John said. But first, uh, my original question, quick question, quick answer. Uh, John, when you used to send me occasionally those uh, inspirational photos you took outside, like old uh, moss-covered rock walls and stuff, uh, yeah, it, it sort of felt felt like, yeah, you saw this, you thought about me, like, yeah, he might find it useful. But I sort of felt like you also have a little bit of appreciation for this, you know, sort of decay on oh, urban yeah. urban decay stuff, you know. So I was wondering if you ever been tempted, like, how it would be pretty cool if I tried replicating this in miniature. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, I 
when I left school and went to college, I trained to be a, a, a draftsman and architect. So it's always been a passion of mine. And every time I'm out, I'm always looking at, you know, uh, sort of broken, you know, windows and decayed wood and paintwork that's flaking off. And my phone is full of photos in like a reference folder for the, for the, the rainy day that I'm going to build, you know, do a diorama and try and incorporate as many of these um, sort of, you know, like techniques in. And as you were saying earlier, I, I, like I've seen all the guys doing the AK um, building facades and I think, oh, I so want to do that. You know, it, that's something that I, I really like. It doesn't have to be military at all. But if I, I think if I wasn't building armor models, I would probably do models of buildings. Yeah, that's um, you know Mart Martin also posts on his Patreon a lot and in his channel, his community, a lot of those kinds of shots, and and they're really really valuable. The other thing, Martin, you need to know about Spud is he's incredibly generous, and uh, even though I'm talking about him in the third person, you know, I he he did a model of of, of an Achilles that I've always just really really admired, and uh, I mean. I, I sent him a message on Facebook and I said, Hey, I just wondered if you had a couple of shots of, of the details. I can't remember what it was, if it was a fender or something. And he said, yeah, yeah, let me get back to you. I just figured he was busy, right? Well, John gets in his car and drives to Bovington and then sends me like a hundred photographs <laughs> of, of the vehicle. And it's like, and, and at the time we don't know each other. And then yeah. um, to finish the story off, that model is in a glass case at my house here. That shows you, <laughs> that shows you the kind of person that John is. He's just incredibly, incredibly generous. So, okay. Anyway. Now I'm going to exploit that. So John, you said you have hundreds of photos of old buildings in your phone send them over photos of old buildings for me are like drugs like i can look at them and sort of just fantasize like yeah i probably won't ever get to building those in miniature but i can at least fantasize of how <laughs> i would approach that you know how would i do that yeah. and so okay so my second question which uh, which uh, was sort of inspired by what you said um like you said editing the magazine five days a week, building models in the evening, attending model shows. Um, I sort of found myself in this really bad state last year when I was completely burnt out and I considered going to a model show just to meet a couple of friends, but just the idea of going there was putting me in a really bad mood. Like if I actually went there, I would probably be a really nasty person to talk to because it was just... I was just so, you know, I, I had enough of all the all the model-related stuff. Uh, so I was wondering if you ever found yourself in a similar spot. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it, I think it was when you'd get, like, really annoying questions, you know, when you're trying your hardest to produce a magazine with the, the, the articles you've been sent and, you know, you can only work with the tools you've been given. And, you know, it was that never being able to please all the people all the time. I think people, especially with the advent of like email and things, they're all too quick to to write in and complain. And you very, very rarely got anybody saying, thank you, I really like this issue of the magazine. So you just assumed that all you were doing was the worst job, you know, you could because, yeah. you know, you, you, you never, even the, our publishers to say, look, just remember it's a silent majority that are happy with it and they tend to not tell you they're happy, but 
you know, they'll let you know if they're not. And then when you look at it and you think, actually, it's only a few people that are, are complaining all the time. And, you know, and if you did actually meet them in public and as soon as you saw them, you could go, yeah, I can totally understand why you're that type of person. But, but I think for you, for you now, if you were to say attend something like SMC where, you know, you've taken a lot of the pressure off of yourself. I know you've still got, you know, a, a full workload with this, but that extra pressure of not doing this every week, I think you'd get such a buzz from going there and just talking to everybody. And, you know, because the hobby is quite solitary, you know, I know hmm. you you can have a lot of electronic communication with people, but to just sit in the bar, talk models, over a beer, you know, and and then all the other stories and the other you know humorous anecdotes come out, and I think it would it would be really good for you actually, you know. So that's that's me trying to say, get yourself along to one of the big shows, and you know, nudge, I think, nudge, yeah, definitely. John beat you to it, Scott. Yes, he did. He did. Well done, well done, Spud. <laughs> I think Sneaky I think move. Martin. I think we've talked about before. You're not that far from Moshan, right? I mean, if you were to, ninety minutes, yeah. Oh yeah, ah. yeah. So um, that's actually one. I mean, I'd love to go to SMC. I haven't been. I am going to go to Telford next year. Um, but uh, the Moshan uh, shows really intriguing that it's put on by a town, and I, I'd, I'd really like to attend that one. John, have you been to that one before? I haven't. No, no. It's um logistically really the ones in uh sort of holland and belgium are about as far as we can you know can attend just really for i've never been comfortable about taking models on an airplane and going through airport security with them all sort of looking and going oh, blessing yeah. these building toy tanks you know so i'd quite happily go in a car or a van and you know be able to drive myself but i think most of them is like i think it's like 1200 miles or some outrageous distance from from where i am in the uk so, uh, but, but to you, to you guys, that's probably just a trip around the corner. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, that's, that's crossing all of Europe, you know. Yeah. yeah. I live, I live here in Utah and we're sort of in the middle of the, of the West. And so it's really nothing for me to drive to, uh, you know, Denver where John lives is eight hours one way in a car. <laughs> Um, you know, San Diego is 11 hours. LA is 11 hours. Phoenix is 10 hours. You know, Seattle's 13 hours. You just jump in the car and I would rather drive than go through security. You know, it's, it's really, really stressful handing a model, um, to a TSA agent and, you know, nothing against them. Um, they, they're doing a job and it's important what they're doing, but it's really, really stressful to do that. I'd much rather just put it in my car and off you go, you know, yeah. take off at three o'clock in the morning and get to John's house by noon and, <laughs> and then uh, let the fun commence. Right. Um, uh, Grant, any other uh, questions that you wanted to kind of bounce off of these fine gentlemen? What do you think has been the biggest change for you with being, I don't want to say more popular, but more in the face of more people. So you're John, you have four corners, which is great. And Martin, you have your, your, your channel. What has been the change in your modeling or your life that, that most people don't know about with these things happening? I, I think for me, it was um, leaving the modeling publishing world behind mm -hmm. and for it to become a hobby again. Mm -hmm. And 
absolutely rekindling my enthusiasm. Yeah, that's that's been the, the the biggest thing for me. It's been able to slow down. I know it's a bit different for Martin, but been able to slow down and build at my own pace and just put the model aside, shut the door to my workroom, and go back in there when the mood takes me. Right, um, and that's been a, a real game changer for me. You know, it's it's taken it stopped it being a chore, and I, you know, now I'm at the point where I'm at work. And all I'm thinking about is getting home and getting on with some modeling, which is just how how it's always should have been for me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's definitely the big thing for me. That's a that's a great answer, Martin. How about yourself? Um, and what was, was the question? So <laughs> it wasn't a very good question, trust me. So I just so I I was just wondering how you know you're you being on a YouTube and having the success you've had, how has that changed you? How has it changed your modeling? How has it changed your, your, that your everyday life, I guess. Well, the way I view modeling is that, um, I'd say I don't strive for perfection as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with, with other people. If, if they are asking for advice, or something or you know constructive criticism i'm more happy when i see people finishing models mm-hmm. than starting 10 shelf queens a year you know and never finishing anything because they set their standard too high and they just get overwhelmed and it becomes boring so i kind of value finishing models more than mm-hmm. building perfect models mm-hmm. and how it changed my life well you know a lot of youtubers will would tell you that it's not the best influence on, on them. Mm-hmm. It sort of leads you spiral somewhere where then you realize it's not a really good place, but you don't realize it at the moment. Mm-hmm. And you become obsessed maybe about numbers, which I never was, but I was more about productivity and you know cranking them up as fast as possible. And, and instead of taking a week off, I would rather work extra hard to really to produce two videos a week so then I can be more work with a more leisure pace the next week. So which wasn't cool at all. But what really changed me this year, well, okay, first was that change in upload schedule. Right. But then uh, I don't know, we can draw parallels. Maybe it, it one thing affected the other, but I found a girlfriend when we're still together and sort of being in a relationship kind of uh, changes my perspective about everything because uh, one ex- one practical example, when I was working on that Creek vignette with the Valentine turret in the water, um, it was Friday afternoon and I, I, I was trying to lay down the initial composition of the thing and it just wasn't working out and I was getting frustrated and I became angry. And by the time, uh, my time was up, I was pissed because we were going to attend some kind of event and, you know, and w- so I had maybe two hours to get that composition right. So I just left, left my studio. We went there. I was grumpy. Then I sort of calmed down, you know, I started enjoying people around me and I realized this is the real world. You know, these are real people around me. Life isn't just about modeling and getting the perfect composition, you know? And then when we returned back, uh, she went to my studio with me, she helped me and suddenly the composition was quite okay, you know? So 
yeah it's it's good and uh, i sometimes think this to myself about people who take modeling too seriously and i think like man you should probably get one more hobby you know <laughs> because you're too serious about this yeah yeah, so, yeah it's supposed to be fun right i yeah. mean yeah and even it's when even when it, even when it's a job it still should be fun you know exactly yeah well for you know congratulations both of you guys i mean it sounds like you guys are you're on the right path again and that's that's and you know that's that's the key thing with this hobby it's like scott said it's all about fun we try in the podcast is as hard as we can to make sure that that's the number one key you know scott pushes that on us every day. And I, I I text Scott and say, you know, sometimes I'm having a bad day too. And he helps me and he, I help him. And so that's the good thing about the whole group of people that we got you know, working for us. Uh, you know, I, I, I really do appreciate you guys with those stories. I know they're not easy, but I really do appreciate that. Yeah. It's gr- great answer. And uh, Martin really appreciate, you know, that glimpse, uh, personal glimpse. I think it really helps a lot of modelers. You know, we, we talk to people, on the podcast and uh, um, that struggle with, you know, different things and modeling can be a really good tool to help people, but it can also like both of you have said, kind of add to the stress. If you're not careful, if you're not managing it, you know, if you're investing too much in say contest wins, or you're just putting pressure on yourself, it, it, it really can, can take the fun out of it. Just want to start to wrap up. And uh, first of all, a note, a personal note from me. I want to, first of all, obviously, thank you for your time um, and coming on and talking. I hope you've had as good a time as as I have. I always enjoy talking to you guys uh, immensely. But I also want to, want to thank you for all the time that you spend. Um, Spud, you don't have to post photos of your of your work as you're going along. Martin, you don't necessarily have to do what you do. And I appreciate the fact that the the community is open, that that I get to learn from you guys as well as other people. And the collaboration of the hobby, I mean, just I'm just gonna say it, it means as much to me personally to to get to know you as people as your work means to me. And your work means an awful lot to me. So I really, really thank you for that. And uh, uh appreciate the great conversation and the perspective. I know our Listeners are going to really, really like it. But anyway, just uh, thank you is is really what I wanted to say. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I have to thank you as well. That was very nice of you. Well, I appreciate it. Um, any other last last words? Um, I mean, we you know, uh, let's start with uh, where people can see your work in case they don't know already. But Spud, where can people see uh, your work as as you're presenting it? Um, mine is just really on Facebook, um, and it's the John Spud Murphy's Model Bench. So, yeah, I, I try and put as many regular updates as possible on whatever I'm working on. Um, so, yeah, that's a place to, to see my work. And um, obviously, the Sherman will be in uh, two part in two parts of uh, AFE Modeler and uh, upcoming issues. So I'm just in the process of writing that up at the moment. Nice. That'll be uh be good to, to look forward to that. And then Martin, um, where can people find your work, my friend? Well, YouTube night at night shift. <laughs> uh, but also also Patreon, where I post photos, for example. And recently actually in magazines again, at least a few, because when I started making videos, uh, you know, publishers were still approaching me. I said, listen, man, I have nothing of value to offer you anymore. Be- you know, why would someone pay for an article when they can see it for free on YouTube? 
But it seems like some publishers stop caring about that and they're fine if I just send them photos of the finished piece and write a few sentences about it. So yeah, diorama this year with a bunch of my dioramas. AK is releasing my Carl Murders at some point. Yeah, so probably that. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. uh, that whole night shift uh, video channel. So I'm sure <laughs> 99% of the people listening are, are familiar. But anyway, all right, guys. Well, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, kept you a couple of hours. Uh, really, again, just appreciate your time. It's been a fun conversation and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank, thank you. you. It was a great time. Thanks, guys. All right, guys, I really do appreciate that. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, and me and Scott had a great time. Yeah, thanks for that, Grant. It was definitely a great interview and extremely thankful for Spud and Martin's time. Unfortunately, I couldn't make that. But listening to it was almost as good as being there and can't wait to see them again in person or online, especially Martin's latest diorama with the wheel. Oh my gosh, the guy's a stud. Absolutely fantastic. So let's go into our second topic and kind of pairs well with the discussion that Spud and Martin talked about and certainly their work of late in, in exploring the space and practicing and getting better and you know expanding your techniques. So the hard Part of this question, the heart of the discussion topic for that matter is practice makes perfect. I think all of us practice in a unique way, whether it's with a paint mule or lack thereof like me, but I'd love to go around and learn how each of us practice. How do we decide, how are we going to execute a new technique? What are we going to do to either perfect it on the model or off and just kind of walk through that. I, I'm, I'm assuming that all of us are going to be a little bit unique and I'd encourage our listeners as well to show how they practice, whether it's you know taking pictures of paint mules or projects they experimented something new on. And with that, you know, for me, practice comes down to on the model. You know, I don't have a paint mule. Uh, usually if I'm going to experiment with a technique, I do research, whether it's watching a video or reading books, thinking about it, and then just executing. And certainly there are a lot of mistakes on the way, but a lot of times you can erase those mistakes or mold those mistakes into something great. You know, Bob Ross, we're going to turn this hat into a happy accident. I think that's a common theme that we've talked about before. So for practicing on my end, Practicing makes perfect through just building more models. Um, I have found that I'd rather paint a model, try something new on it, and just do it as opposed to try a paint mule and then do it. I prefer, it's, it's almost like a sport for that matter. You go out, you play around a golf, you get better. Now, granted, going to the driving range and putting green are important, and you can certainly do that maybe off to the side while you're building. But I find, you know, actually working on a model, at least for me, is, uh, incredibly valuable from a learning standpoint and from a practice standpoint. I can see that with the facades I recently built and how to leverage, you know, working with acrylics um, for the SDKFC 253 for the turkey shoot. It was all around timing and understanding and practicing. Okay. How long do I have to wait for certain things? And a lot of times you don't have to wait that long at all. And the same was with the battleship turret here where I practiced rust techniques where I hadn't really pushed rust tones that much on a model. And that was a great canvas to practice on. And then also going back to timing, uh, I took the TJ approach where I blasted on a coat of matte, matte varnish from VMS. And I remember I was on Zoom with Zach Grizzle and I was like, hey man, how long do you wait for uh, for this stuff to dry before you go on? And he's like, about 
20 seconds, if not sooner. He's like, as soon as I put down the airbrush, I go on. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. And sure enough, worked fantastic. I threw I threw a coat of VMS flat on it and went after it right away. And I think, you know, practicing those things and taking a risk, you know, also, you know, I think part of practicing, especially on a model is that risk aspect, but you learn a lot and you learn it quickly and you can apply it the next time and you just keep going and going and going and going and going. And I think there's a saying out there, what, 10,000 hours to get to something to master it. I'm certainly not even close to that, but uh, hopefully one day I do achieve it. Uh, but that's how I practice on a paint mule. Uh, that doesn't exist, I should say. I practice on the model in which I'm building right away. So I'll pause there. I'm going to go around the room. On my screen, it shows Scott next. So I'm going to popcorn over to him. Thanks, John. Uh, you know, I, I think that building on what you're saying, I think there's an import, important point here. A mule is definitely, I think, something that can be used in certain circumstances. I know, uh, you know, other builders talk online about, you know, they wanted to try a certain technique, but not using a mule and actually working on the model. And, uh, you know, a lot of the guys on, on this chat are really good at just kind of being fearless and moving forward. If you make a mistake, part of getting good at a technique is figuring out how to unscrew up your mistake, right? And so I think there's value in just build a model, finish a model, you know, uh, we've been talking about our facades that, you know, I, I've made no secret painting with a painting acrylics with a paintbrush is outside of my comfort zone. So you just got to do it. You know, I had wanted to do that technique on the distressed wood for a long time and I just had never done it. And so, you know, just do it, you know, just do the Nike thing and um, grab it and and see if it works. And if it doesn't, you know, try something else. So I like that not using a mule, I think has just as many benefits as using a mule in, in terms of, of practice. And and I think uh, just just do it. I, I can't really say more than that. 100%. All right. We're going to continue going around the horn to Douglas. Well, for me, um, practice uh, sometimes does involve a mule. If I'm trying something that that I, especially if it's something that I haven't seen done before, like if it's just trying to modify maybe somebody else's technique, I've tried, I tried multiple, multiple layers of hairspray chipping. I first did hairspray chipping on something uh, without a mule. And then I tried what happens if I do hairspray chipping and I, I do a layer, I chip it. And then I do another layer and chip that one with a different color and see what, what happens and if it's worth continuing with that or uh, you know i certainly didn't want to put that much hairspray on a model so i've i played around with that um in the end it does come down to just build just just keep building just keep trying take other people's advice watch youtube see what people are are doing and and then try to try to do it try to do it their way and if you see a way that you can you think it might be a little better for you then try a different way modify those those techniques and and just keep going that's how i how i try to work doesn't always benefit me but um i've actually discovered quite a few things that work well for me uh in doing that you know Doug that's a great point when we were on the on the group builds over thanksgiving rick lawler was working on his new project and i think twice during the weekend um, he tried something new that he'd never done before and then ended up repainting the entire model. And and so uh, my point is, is what's the worst that can happen? You know, if you try something and it doesn't work, just prime it, spray it, try again. Yep. What about Grant? Uh, I don't use a mule. I, I, I take that back. I have used a mule for a few things in the past, but never painting. I used it for texturing, figuring out how to texture something a little bit better. 
Um, but that's, I don't use a mule. Um, I like to do like everybody else, mostly everybody else here, it seems is just, you know, look at it, look at a pattern or looking at a, a process and, and then trying it and then, you know, learning from that process and then just moving on. Um, Gary Baker is uh, a friend of ours that is a figure painter. And he, he sat down with me one time and said, you know, this is what you got to do. And you don't, you don't, you know, you just have to attack it, learn from, learn from that one and then move on to the next one. So um, that's kind of what I do. I, I try to do uh, as much learning before I chart, start a new uh, process, you know, books, uh, YouTube videos, talking to people, um, everything like that. So um, I, I kind of just, I, I kind of throw it at the wind, I guess, on, in better words, and just just do it. We're going to owe Nike a lot of money after this video, but, you know, it, it's, it's the best thing to do is just, you know, attack it, just do it, you know, and then learn. You know, you can fix it, you know, and then move, if, if you don't want to fix it, you just keep it like it is. That's great. But, you know, just do it. Just, just, just attack it. And I'm going to go over to Jensen. Um, practice. Nah. Um, <laughs> more like on the job training. Just, just do it. <laughs> like you said, just do it on the model. I've always kind of, the only time I'll have a paint mule of sorts, and it's not a paint mule because, because I don't have anything specific on hand for that. It's just, if I have a model that it's like, nah, I'll throw some paint on that, um, is if I have bought a brand new paint that I don't know how it behaves. So I'll just throw it on something to, test the paint again mm-hmm. not practicing or if i buy a new tool uh like a new scriber just want to try it on something to see how it behaves i'll get a bit of plastic card or it, just stuff like that so actual modeling techniques i don't practice them i just learn them as i'm doing them because i think that's the best way because i found in the past i used to have a paint mule and i do different techniques on it i'm like okay cool i've tested this in like a controlled practice scenario now i'm trying it on the real thing it's like ah this isn't the same right? because it was in a controlled environment. I know this is getting, I'm treating it like it's like a nuclear test, but yeah, it, I was doing it on a flat piece of wing and I was doing streaking and rust effects. It's like, okay, but I'm going to put these effects on a tank and a wing and a tank aren't the same thing. So no, don't have, don't have uh, paint mules or practice mules or anything like that. Yeah. Just kind of echoing what, what others have said. Um, I, I do everything as I'm doing it on the model. And if it doesn't go right, I'll, erase it and start again until I do get it right or just try and get it better on the next model. That's how I practice. Just try and do each next model better than the last. And really it's, it's that simple. I can't really, uh, it's, I don't want to say it's a waste of time to have practice mules, uh, because I understand the value and why they would be good for other people. But for me, it's just, if I'm putting this energy to practice these techniques and finishes on a scrap, I should be putting that energy into the actual model itself. And I'll throw it over to TJ. So this might come as a, a bit of a surprise from the guy that claims he doesn't play in anything. I do have a paint mule. I have a couple paint mules actually, and I use them often. I don't use them all the time, but if I want to try something new or if I need to test something that I want to try that isn't necessarily new, I will get one of my paint mules out. The caveat to that is it's mainly for when I do something like machining Krieger because I, I'll get an idea in my head of a camo scheme. And since you, you use un quote unquote unconventional colors to paint a lot of the camos i will paint on a test mule to just see how that combination works before i commit to doing the whole thing it's not like oh i don't know how i'm going to paint this olive drab i know how to do that or you know i know how to paint 4bo or even do like a traditional camouflage scheme because i know what colors to use and how to do it but to me it for me it's just more of figuring out what what will 
complement each you know itself well now i don't always do it sometimes i will just gamble and just be like yeah look at the jars like yeah these jars look okay um that's really the, probably the closest thing i come to like actual practice and, and you know so if i'm doing like a, a very fine camouflage scheme or like a like a i guess more pattern yeah i'll i'll you know i'll practice a little bit of that first just to you know, especially if i haven't painted in a while and it's been like a week or a week or two since i used the airbrush which you know as i'm sure a lot of people know and i'm sure everyone here does too you you will you know i work in like like waves kind of right i'll build a whole bunch and then i'll be like oh you know i feel like painting and i'll spend the weekend just painting all the stuff that i've built and it may be a week two weeks sometimes even three weeks since i've really like sat down to paint something you get rusty you know even with the the muscle memory that i'm sure we all have from years of of building like yeah you got to ease into it a little bit so yeah i'll I'll practice on the bottom of a tank you know because no one's ever going to pick it up and look at the bottom um or i'll just get one of the paint mules out yeah and then if i do pigments which i don't normally do that's the part of the other reason why i don't use a lot of mules because i'm not really a pigments guy and uh, i've not ever i've never been comfortable with using them so those i will like i'll test out like on a paint mule i have a m3 lee that i've done a bunch of pigment work on um just to see how it looks or I'll just grab some other random crap that I have. I have a, like a lot of like leftover pieces and spare pieces from stuff that I'll I'll just mess around with. But yeah, that's kind of funny. I don't plan anything really, but I do practice probably more than <laughs> anyone else here. You know, I was thinking about some of you probably won't remember this, but TJ, I know you will. I was thinking about that famous interview with Alan Iverson where a reporter was making a big deal about the fact that Iverson notoriously didn't like to practice, you know, and he's a perennial all-star, one of the best players in the league. And, you know, he just looked at the reporter and said, practice? I mean, we're talking about practice here, you know, and and it, I think I think it's kind of the same thing. I don't want to imply that there's any arrogance with it, with any of us, but I think no, I think um, I think what you're what you says is clear. I'm the Allen Iverson of scale modeling. That's, that's okay. <laughs> I, I I think I think kind of where I, where I was leaning is you're you're you are the Allen Iverson, and that the results are the results. I mean, you know, obviously Iverson would practice at least some of the time, but I think his point and and all of our points maybe are are just that you know the results are the are the results you know um there's a lot of value in just grabbing something and not being afraid of trying it and if you fail to whatever degree we're talking about and and Jensen I'm going to agree with kind of your take on this where I also agree that Jensen fails a lot that's a good point Scott <laughs> Where you're so hard on yourself, you know, and at the end of the day, it's like, what's the worst that can happen? Paint over it. Try it again. Prime it. You know, I love you, buddy. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. I haven't seen you in a while. I got to give you a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I, I've got it's all it's all pent in uh, or pent up. I got to get it all out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like uh, to, to what you're saying, Scott, like, yeah, I don't. And maybe some people do. I, I don't know. But I I don't set it aside what i would consider practice time for what i do i don't know it's not it's not like guitar you know or like when i used to play my bass i would sit down and like practice playing like i i I don't know i don't necessarily know if i treat every model as like practice but yeah it's like it it, it, you're practicing as you're doing it i guess 
I, I guess it's a little bit different than like playing an instrument because I don't have to like practice my show or like, you know, we would practice for like a show we had coming up. Obviously, we would practice, yeah. you know, our set list and make sure we were all, you know, tight and everything was good. Obviously, that's a little different than what we do. But yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't really sit down. I, I kind of treat, I do kind of treat everything as practice and, and just take what I've already learned and, and, you know, try to apply it to what I'm working on. And if it, if it turns, if it works, then it, it works. If it doesn't, like my Churchill, I feel like a lot of that didn't work. Then okay, you just chalk it up as a loss and move on to the next one. I mean, it's just plastic. Who gives I a mean, shit? I mean, doing doing a gig is a, a kind of practice too, right? I mean, you're talking about you know practicing your bass and you know your picking and your finger placement and all the things that are required to play an instrument at a high level. But playing a gig is practice too. You know, if you- I, I I need to correct you that I have never played an instrument at a high level, Scott. I just, I just oh, want that geez. to be, to be very clear. <laughs> I was I not did. a good, I was not a good bass player. I wasn't then. I'm definitely not now because I don't play anymore. So I just want that. I want all that out on the table. <laughs> but if you, if you got paid, you were a professional, right? I never got paid. The closest uh, I ever got, I think was a case of soda. <laughs> Doesn't work like that. In the hardcore scene. Yeah. Scott. <laughs> I'm expecting maybe too much, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, playing, playing a gig. I mean, I went to a show, I went to a a show that sticks did here in Salt Lake where they were going to do a residency in Vegas and they played a three and a half hour show. And they said right at the start, Hey, Hey guys, uh, you know, this is kind of a tune up gig. Hope you enjoy it. And uh, there were a couple mistakes that they had some fun and, and it was good. And, you know, those guys obviously, um, whether you like them or not, you know, um, that's a pretty high level thing. And I think it's the same with us. I mean, part of our practice is making a piece and every piece. It's like this idea that I think a lot of us have. We've talked about this before where I've got this Tamiya Uber kit or I have this kit and a band I find a perfect grade Millennium Falcon and I'm not going to do it until I'm good enough. You know, sort of this idea of rehearsal versus doing it. Well, just do it, you know, pull it out and do it. I mean, otherwise you're you're literally never going to do this idea of practice. um, You're going to get better by just doing it. I don't know. That's not very eloquent, but <laughs> I, I think we just need to get over ourselves. I mean, Jensen is a way better modeler than he gives himself credit for. And 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 just like he said, I said said it perfectly. If 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 you don't do a blend good enough, then paint over it and do it again. Yeah. All it, all it costs is a little bit more time, but that's why we do this hobby, because it, it fills our time and we enjoy it. I mean, I want to, I mean, there's a couple of, I mean, Jensen, when you were doing that ambulance, there's a couple of times you almost trashed it. And, mm. and I think, is it safe to say it's kind of one of your, fa- it's one of my favorite pieces of yours. Oh yeah. It's top shelf in the cabinet. Um, jo- uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, John, when you were working on that border models T-34 with the add-on armor, you know, there were a couple of times during the construction and painting, you were, I, th- I think, ready to throw it against the wall. And, you know, we've all been frustrated with it but yet look at when we stick with it and we just do it look at look at how they turn out i think i think that i think it's just important to get over ourselves to give ourselves a break and and to just look at every project maybe not as a destination but a journey you know just the way we're going to get better is by learning how to get around the obstacles we place in front of ourselves i agree 
Yeah, for sure. So listeners, share us how you practice, whether it's through paint mule, sheets of styrene, anything. Uh, feel free to chime in, share a picture on the Plastic Posse Facebook group. We'd love to have a chat and continue the conversation online. So thanks so much. I'm going to kick it over to Jensen to talk about our friends in the sphere of modeling podcasts and social media. Thanks, John. It's time for a reminder that the Plastic Posse is just one of several great scale modeling podcasts. You can head over to modelpodcasts.com and you will find links to many other great podcasts such as Small Subjects, Plastic Model Mojo, Just Making Conversation, The Model Geeks Podcast, The Model Insanity Podcast, On the Bench, Sprue Cutters Union, The Scale Model Podcast, and many, many more. We also recommend several scale modeling related blogs and vlogs such as Stephen Lee's Sprue Pie with Frets, Chris Wallace's Model Airplane Maker, A Scale Canadian TV with Mr. Jim Bates, and David Brian Bridges' DC Scale Model studio blog it's time to head to tj for some merch news if you want to rep the posse check out our awesome merch at our triple p spring page you can find coffee mugs t-shirts jumpers and even some of our world famous triple p lounge trousers you can order all of your stylish plastic posse merch at the web at plastic posse podcast.creatorspring.com or at lounge trousers.com Thanks for writing along with us for episode 83 of the Plastic Posse. Your support and our great sponsors and patrons help bring a Triple P to you every two weeks. Stay tuned for more great content, including the great interview with Clayton Ockerby from Australia. Posse will take a brief break over the holidays. Our next podcast will include more details. Got a gripe? A suggestion? You can send your feedback to the Plastic Posse podcast at gmail.com. If you haven't yet joined the Plastic Posse page group page on Facebook, it is time. See you in two weeks and yeehaw! If you would like to support the Triple P and become a Plastic Posse Outrider, well, it's super easy. Go on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Plastic Posse Podcast, and you can set up a recurring donation there. These contributions will really help us offset the cost of bringing you the Triple P. There's three different tiers of support, and they start at just a buck a month. There's some great benefits, too. You can get early access to podcasts, premium access to the hosts, the chance to appear on a podcast, and exclusive Triple P content. Let's recognize our amazing deputy marshals. These guys step up and help the posse do what we do, and we sincerely thank them for their support. First, our two newest deputy marshals are Michael Geyer and John Hale. Thanks, guys. And our fantastic crew of experienced marshals who will be showing Michael and John around the ranch. Casey Gray, Mike Norris, Stephen Rod Rodwell, Brad Ralston, Rick Cooper, Tim Gidcomb, Dan Newman, Robert Blocker, Tyler Moore, Derek Post, Craig Flynn, Brian Kreiner, Scale Modelcraft, Ken Childress, Nick Butta, Drew Gardner, Scott Hall. 
Frank Perone, The Voice of Bob, Jeremy Diamond, Ryan Smith, Terry Wilkinson, Chris Lovewell, Andrew Callis, Ethan Idenmill, Bruce the Model Noob, Steve Baker, Eric Daglish, Joe Porche, Patrick Brown, Steve Schaefer, Jay Kidd, Brandon Gentry, Robert Klein, Mark Ewing, Ted Kawahara, Toadman, Model Doc, Doug Reed, Greg James, Les Workala, John Everett, Josh Buck, Thomas Bannock, Mark Bradley, Zach Pease, Joel Munson, Eric Brubaker, Jeremy Moore, DB Scale Model Studio, Matt Johnston, Jeremy Elliott, Mike Talley, Previous Seat, Mediocre Middle-Aged Modeler, Dan Nofel, and J.C. Osborne. Let's also recognize our excellent posse foreman. These foremen are outriders who give the deputy marshals a hand. Keith, James, William, Tim, Jeff, Eddie, Ross, George, Gary, Warhoff Models, Drew, Ross, Eric, Len, Cliff, Eric, Mike, Papa, Steve, Red Beach One Studios, MD Models, JV, Damien, Kieran, Cody, Tim, Nukeman, Mike, Greg, JK, Ash, Irish Pat, Paul, what's the deal with iBones Models, Mr. Grizz, Jackson, Mac Armor, Chris, Lee, and Jamie. And of course, our posse outriders. Please consider posting a review of the Triple P on your podcast platform. Each five-star review helps other modelers find the Plastic Posse. (laughs) 